I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. <laughs> you pop crazed youngsters and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee of a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always I'm joined by two people who honed and sharpened their critical knives upon the very grindstone of Melody Maker back in the day. First up, my man Taylor Parks. Hey up, Taylor. All right, how are you doing? Very well, sir, very well. And it's a welcome return to Mr. Simon Price. Hello, Al, how you doing? You know, at the beginning of every show I always say, have you done anything pop and interesting of, of late yeah. and uh, I'm not I'm not even going to bother asking that because I trump all of you because I crashed over at Chris Needham's house the other week what the fuck yes yes and I met Gav Skinner who was the um, the, the, the the guitarist of a higher standard who um, was basically uh, the Janine uh, of Manslaughter I trust you're talking who, to the listeners here Al because we know yeah, yes, yes, I am, yes. <laughs> and uh, I also met his brother as well, uh, John, who was Britain's youngest um, thrash metal fan and uh, isn't anymore. Still a thrash metal fan, but a little bit older. And most importantly, Chris gave me his latest album. And uh, there's a track on it which uh, caught my eye called The Predator Becomes the Prey. And I thought, oh, fucking hell, this is going to be a song about uh, paedophile vigilante groups or something like that. No, it's about pike fishing. That's <laughs> magnificent, isn't it? And probably the first song ever which samples a bite alarm. See, Al, you've, you've given us all these minor details, and I'm not complaining, they're great details. But mm. why did you end up sleeping at Chris Needham's house? Well, he invited me over. What? He, he, rang me, he rang me up and said, oh, my me, me parents are away on holiday. Come round and get pissed up. And I went, yeah, right then. Fair enough. You and him are that close. <laughs> you like, you like that? Fucking hell. Oh, God, yeah, 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 yeah. A little bit of backstory for people who don't know. I uh, I, I became an obsessive about In Bed With Chris Needham, and, uh, which is one of the reasons why me and Taylor and Simon connected so quickly when we met on a on a forum, when Simon said it's the greatest music documentary ever. yeah. And I, I ended up interviewing Chris for the local magazine, which I edited, even though he doesn't come from Nottingham. I thought I'm going to interview him anyway. And we got on like a house on fire. We did a couple of uh, Q&As at Heavy Metal Film Festival. So yeah, yeah, we, we kind of know each other now. And uh, yeah, went round his house, got pissed up because it was Gav Skinner's birthday. And I'm impressed. But if you can score yourself a night round Blue Tulip Rose Reed's house... Then I want to hear about it. Oh, well, that's the next step, isn't it? That is, that is the next step. So you know who we are and you know what we're here for. 
Yet another binge upon the carcass of an episode of Top of the Pops. This week, we're landing bang in the middle of Top of the Pops' Flags and Balloons period with an episode from January the 14th, 1982. Now then, Simon, we're about four months away from the show we covered in a previous chart music, uh, chart music number eight. And, uh, you know, we, we, we did love that episode, didn't we? But things seem very different by looking at this. Can you tell us what you think has happened between then and now? I think almost imperceptibly, some of the kind of edge of 1981 music has started to soften in 82. And, you know, you describe it as the flags and balloons period. And I think that is not just Top of the Pops, that's happening to pop in general. Mm. We're we're moving towards what became known as the new pop. Um, I think the high point of that would have been 83. But we are moving towards a kind of new frivolity in pop, which... um, Actually, you know, there's there's plenty to be said for that. But as a kind of dodgy old goth, um, obviously I kind of lament the passing of the kind of slightly noir um, aspect that, um, you know, pertained to, to the great records of 81. Mm. Because for a lot of people, you flip your coin between 81 and 82 for the best music year ever, don't you? I've heard a lot of people say that. I, I know a lot of 82 fans, but for me it's 79. I mean, we talked about this before, 79 yeah. or 81. Um, 82, a lot of my favourite bands were kind of in decline by this point, particularly because mm. I was into two-tone, ska and all of that. I think I was sulking because those bands weren't having big hits anymore. Yeah. Some of them had even split up, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I was still kind of, you know, clinging to the uh, centimetre-long uh, rude boy haircut and and, and, and the um, and the appropriate clothing. But um, I just felt that pop was moving away from me in, in a direction I didn't quite understand. Mm. Tell us about your club, Simon. You you don't big yourself up enough on this, I don't think. All right. Okay, yeah. Well, I've, I've been doing this club called Spellbound for the best part of a decade now down in Brighton. And we call it, um, kind of jokingly, the 80s night for people who hate 80s nights. And basically mm. the idea is that most 80s club nights you go to really focus on the cheese. You know, they're usually run mm. by kind of... St- students who weren't even there at the time yeah. and and who just think it's all like big phones and shoulder pads and you know cocktails and all of that yeah. which is fine don't get me wrong there's there's a place for that but i i kind of wanted to celebrate the stuff that gets left behind which is i guess the alternative side of the 80s so you know we just play loads of Susie and the Banshees, Talking Heads, The Smiths, The Cure, The Specials, um, Killing Joe, Echo and the Bunny Man, all that kind of stuff. And um, that's shit, yeah, Simon. Don't, don't you do? Don't you play any Oasis or anything? <laughs> well, they are from the nineties, Al. I've got oh well, yeah, that's that. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we actually about, um, we actually had a, a, a late eighties special recently, just so we could play a bit of Stone Roses and Happy Mondays. Which is oh, fun. good. Because yeah, you, you normally, never hear um, them, do you, in clubs nowadays at no, all? No, no, no. Uh, but nor- normally we concentrate on uh, 79 to 85, so we're talking basically um, Tube by Army, On Top of the Pops, through to Live Aid is the kind of golden golden years right. um, of, of what we do. Um, Ex- yeah, so so it's it's something, you know, even at the time, as, as we were living through this era that we're looking at now, I did think that, you know, this is some kind of renaissance of pop, it's some kind of great golden age, mm. um, digging underneath the charts, it was right there in the charts. Um so you know, um, it, yeah. it, it it came to you. That's that's what it was. Um, great music came to you. It came to you in fucking Woolworths. You didn't have to go. You didn't have to go with a cool kind of indie record shop. Yeah. Although I did. Spillers in Cardiff, legendary record shop in Cardiff. I went there too. But you know, you could find stuff in the um, forty nine pence discount X chart racks, even in your local newsagent. 
that was absolutely brilliant. You know those kind of spinners yeah. for greetings cards? They used to have those, but with X, X char or X jukebox records with a big mm. hole in the middle. Um, and you could build a brilliant record collection That's um, right, yeah. really quickly and really cheaply around that time. And, and I, I just did have this sense that everything was sort of falling yeah. into place and it was just a fantastic time for music. Mm. Taylor, this era, well, well, are you, a, you an 80s kid? Yeah, sorry, I was just thinking about Stone Roses and Happy Mondays fans. <laughs> They're like the new baby boomers, aren't they? Yes. They're like the, 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 the moobers. There's too many carb-heavy <laughs> snacks. Yeah, they're currently showing 1984 on the BBC repeats, right? And we did yeah. a 1984 uh, one a while ago. The difference is astonishing, and you, it's easy to forget this now that pop time moves so slowly as we mm. approach heat death. The 1984 <laughs> is already the long 80s, right? It's the, you've already got yeah. that. Uh, it's like a messy gleam. Of, it's like a chaos of... Uh, sort of tatty aesthetics but it's all held together with this thick glaze this thick cocaine speckled glaze whereas 1982 <laughs> still looks like like people doing people things in mm. various interesting ways but it's fading just a little there's a slightly less dense concentration of ideas in 82 than there was yeah. in 81 and you can just about you know if you know what to look for you can just about sense the next ice age starting to blow in um but it was it was great i mean you know in the real world 1982 was something of a trough but it was a good year for pop and it was all right i was having an okay time too i was nine or ten uh mm. just got into radio four comedies <laughs> Weekend in. No, yeah, my my friend at school, who's now a quite successful record producer and DJ, came from a, a slightly more sort of middle class family than I did. I mean, in quite a nice way. We were sort of lower middle class, just come up from working class and a bit gauche. Whereas his mm. folks were sort of arty, lefty middle class, like eating pasta in 1982. God. You know, in 1982, eating pasta. That's ridiculous. To, listening to folk And the word's Italian. Yeah. No, 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 no. They read the Guardian. That was what it was. Oh. I go around their house and smell this cooking, and hear about the <laughs> Labour Party, and get introduced to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and yeah. week ending and stuff. And when you're ten, um, and you, you know, you you come from the scum. This is like a new world. Somewhere I've got a few old episodes of Week Ending, and it. I mean, you listen to it now. It's all parodies of under milk wood about lewis murphy yeah. colliery you know and sea shanties <laughs> about the cold war but um <laughs> at the time i'd listen to it and i'd feel like i was an adult that was the thing i feel like i was yeah. an adult, laughing at adult things not not realizing yeah but not realizing what it really meant is that weekending was pitched about the right intellectual level for a bright 10 year old Yes, <laughs> my 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 equivalent of that was not the nine o'clock news. Yes, um, not so much not so much the TV show, which I think maybe had finished by this point. But they kept bringing out books yes. and these kind of calendar diary things, like not nineteen eighty two, not nineteen eighty three. That's right, yeah. And just just the humour they were making in there, I didn't quite understand it. But um, just the fact that they were laughing at kind of establishment stuff in a way that I didn't realise you were allowed to. Yeah. Um, was quite quite formative i think and when you look back now yeah i mean as taylor says a lot of it's absolute crap but it had its place it, it performed its role in my life definitely because mm. it's really funny because at this time i was listening to weekending and stuff like that because f for some bizarre reason my school entered a team in top of the form 
and I was in it. And the, the first round, we mashed down this school from Derby. And then the second round, we went up against uh, a public school from Reading and we got absolutely fucking battered. One oh, of, it was like the Eaton Rifles. Yeah, it was exactly like the fucking Eaton no, Rifles. No, Scumbag College and yes, the Young Ones. Yeah. And one of the rounds... So, some of your lads said they'd be back next week. Yes. Well, the music round was fucking Noel Coward. And <laughs> I, I remember, because it, it was a radio link, so I'm sat there on the, uh, on the assembly stage in front of my school, and they were radio linking their fucking much better school. And everyone on my team were just looking at each other when Noel Coward came on and going, who the fuck is this cunt? <laughs> and I've hated him ever since. And if it was about like bad manners and shwaddy waddy, you'd have kicked their ass. Oh, know? yeah. If it had been lip up fatter, we'd have fucking killed them. That's like I was in a school books quiz once, right? And it was like we were already yeah. trying our luck as a sort of proletarian school in a books quiz and made it yeah. to the tie break. And the question was about the Bible. Oh, dear. Oh. Yeah. No, that was the end of that. Radio One News. So, what was in the news this week? Well, 81 people have been killed in the Potomac River after an air crash in Washington. There's been another national rail strike in the UK. Oliver Reed has returned to Heathrow Airport with his 17-year-old girlfriend. A document emerges claiming that the USA were planning to drop three more atomic bombs in 1945. Enver Hodja, the leader of Albania, makes a public appearance which crushes the rumour that he's been killed in a gunfight with his deputy leader. And we're all awaiting the draw of the 1982 World Cup at the end of the week. Well, me and Taylor are. I don't know about you, Simon. I was really excited, man. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't leave me out your football narrative. I had the Espana 82 Panini book oh. and I filled it. Good man. All of it? Oh, yeah, 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 man. Fucking respect. I was obsessed with those little, um, the little pictures that each city had. Yeah. You know? they, were, they were done by, like, proper artists like Juan Miro. That's right, like yeah. That. Did they have a big picture Ooh, of Naranja on the front? I liked him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, it? He was good, wasn't he? <laughs> that, that was the days when, you know, football World Cup mascots were just, just decent, weren't they? Just a big orange with some shorts on and a football. Yeah. Nowadays... Can you remember the last no, one? it all went wrong with footics. Yeah. 82 was my favourite World Cup, I think. That was 78. 78 is the first I remember. Yeah. But 82 just seemed completely magical, I think. I mean, this is probably something for another podcast, but what a brilliant world. Even even the whole intrigue, you know, the whole scandal with Austria and Germany and all of that. It's just It was just a perfect World Cup. I think, I think 78 shades it for me, simply because... There was British disaster, but it didn't involve England for a change, so that was quite entertaining. <laughs> but no, I was quite upset that Scotland was shit because you know I had much investment due to all the Forest players in it. So yeah, but the big news this week is that Margaret Thatcher's fuckwitted son has been found in the Sahara Desert after getting lost for six days. Yeah, I bet weekending had something to say about that. <laughs> oh, you can imagine, can't you? Yeah. Even to this day, I can't listen to Party Fears 2, which is one of my favourite early 80s pop singles, without hearing the name of all these two-bit gag writers. It's like standing at a yes. light entertainment cenotaph. <laughs> hearing yes. this really long list of news lines by uh, oh god Nick Brown and Ian Hendry it's just oh never yeah. apologies Nick and Ian if you're listening I don't know if they're still alive the cover of the enemy this week Adamant the cover of Smash It's this week 
orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. But Smash Hits have just had their readers poll for 1981. So should we see? Should we see how we get on? Best band, 1981. Human League. League. Taylor. Uh, Adam and the Ants. Adam and the Ants. Yes. One nil to Taylor. Best male singer. Adam Ant. Yeah, it must be. (laughs) Gary Newman. Oh, Oh, what? Of course, that would be a separate category, wouldn't it? Uh, Best female singer. Toya. Oh, uh, uh, Debbie Harry. Toya. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I'm getting the wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your favourite as well, Taylor. I, I hate Toya. You love her. Yeah, oh, don't. No, when she come, when she crops up on this show, oh, yeah. God, she's getting it in the neck. <laughs> Best single of 1981. Oh, God. Do you know what? Probably, I would have said Don't You Want Me by the Human League, but probably mm. um, the, the forms would have gone out. in the day. Yeah. 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 Vote, voting yeah, yeah. is closed. Yeah, it's like uh, like like PFA football yes. of the year. Yeah. It's always. Uh, um, I don't know. Stand and deliver. No, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna copy that. Yeah. Tainted love by Soft Cell. Oh yeah, yeah. Should have thought of that. Best yeah. LP of 1981. <laughs> Dare. Uh, I can't even think of any LPs from 1981. Dare by the Human League. <laughs> yeah, because yes! of course it is. You know what I mean? Of course it's going <laughs> In your to face, be that. Park. Most promising act for 1982. Bow, wow, wow. Uh, the birthday party. <laughs> Altered <laughs> images. Uh, of course. Most oh, of course. appalling single of 1981. Um, Shut Up Your Face by Joe Dolce. You'd think, wouldn't you? I don't like this game. Oh, Superman. Oh, no. Oh. Yeah. Laurie Anderson. It's actually kind of good. And the best television show? Top of the Pops. Uh, not the Nine O'Clock News. Top of the Pops beating <laughs> Not the Nine yes. O'Clock News into second place. Uh, I'll chuck a bonus question in here. Which singer had Tainted Love as... His worst single of the year. Um, Rod Stewart. Paul Weller. Oh, he was very, very catty, wasn't he? At, around that yes. time, Paul Weller. Yeah, he didn't yes. like didn't like synthesizer music. He thought it was no. uh, faceless and inhuman. Just pressing a button into yeah, it. Yeah, you just press a button and tainted love comes out. <laughs> Where's the fire and skill in that? <laughs> <laughs> so the number one LP in the UK this week is Love Songs by Barbara Streisand in America the number one single is Physical by Olivia Newton-John and the number one LP in the US is For Those About to Rock by ACDC yes. Yes. so my friends what were you doing in January of 1982 I'll give you a bit of a clue on this one you were probably freezing your tits <laughs> off because it was dead code um, well I was 14 years old um, as we've already established in the episode that uh that, that was about, uh, you know, just three and a half months earlier, wasn't it? The, the last last one I did. Um, mm. Living in Barry, South Glamorgan, third year of Barry Boys Comprehensive School, spending most of my time in my bedroom overlooking the docks, the fairground, the sea. Like a Welsh Bruce Springsteen, aren't you, Simon? Yeah, yeah, I, that's how I think of myself. But in the distance, glamorous England. I could see Western Supermare twinkling. Oh. My head. God. Somerset, sexy Somerset. Wow! And I, I was um, I was sleeping on a mattress <laughs> on the floor of that bedroom, 
because I was using the bed frame as the base for a Sabutio stadium. Oh, well played that man. My mum was really annoyed because she couldn't get in with the Hoover. But yeah, the entire floor was either my bed or the Sabutio stadium. It was a stadium that went three sides round. I had to have one side clear to get my arms in. It's a bit like, um, do you remember Brisbane Road, Leighton Orient's ground mm. had one side missing? It's pretty much that. Yeah, oh, um, nice. And the other thing was... What teams did you have? Oh, I had them all. I, I had so many, about like 20 or 30 teams. But um, the, the old, the old ones that you got from Jumble Sales were the best because they had lead weights in the base yeah. and the players yes. the players were crouched down a bit, so a lower centre of gravity. So uh, there was a great yeah. old Wolves team I had like that and an old Celtic one that had really heavy bases. So it meant that if you did a free kick, it really fucking hammered it. It was brilliant. Yeah. Um, Just a team of cloggers. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nice. You spend enough time around lead as a child, and you too could grow up to be a music journalist. <laughs> and also, perhaps coincidentally, I don't know, but um, the hormones were starting to kick in um, around this time, oh. and I got bad skin. I, I really did. Um, so uh, basically, I was putting Dettol directly onto my face because I thought Dettol was the same as TCP. <laughs> I didn't realize. I thought it's basically like you've got Coca Cola and Pepsi, right? And you've got Dettol and TCP. <laughs> I didn't realise you meant to dilute it. So I just put it straight onto my skin oh. uh, where there had been a spot. And it burnt like fuck. It just made matters worse. So I so I had oh, this kind yeah. of recurring scab right in the middle of my chin. And another one on my top lip that was there for probably about 18 months, two years. This is why I didn't have a girlfriend until I was about 17. Um, oh, man. You, you probably thought Biactol was a nearby <laughs> well, village, I was, didn't I you? I was putting on the Clearasil. The sad thing about Clearasil, right... It was meant to be sort of like skin coloured. It's meant to blend in so nobody would notice. But basically, <laughs> um, the colour was kind of uh, Des O'Connor. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, it, yes. it, it wasn't very uh, un unobtrusive on a pale Welsh kid. Um, and also, um, I, I, I think my, my, my family were trying to sort of tell me to put childish things such as Sabutio aside because the Christmas that had happened <sighs> a couple of weeks earlier before this episode... I was given um, a cheap bottle of Blue Stratos aftershave and and, um, and, oh. and a battery-operated shaver. Probably a hint that I was growing a bit of a oh, kind of... Oh, my son yeah, is becoming a yeah, man. Yeah, it was my granddad, actually. I think he was gently hinting that I was growing a bit of a bum-fluff moustache, which needed to be dealt with. And I was like, <laughs> oh, man, what I wanted was another Sabutio team or something. But, yeah. Yeah. And um, and musically, I was, I was, as I mentioned, still clinging on the arse end of two-tone. I was massive, massively into yeah. the Human League um, on the back of the Dare album, which had come out, you know, the end of 81. Mm. Um, obsessed with Dexter's Midnight Runners. And later that year, um, I would discover a love of ABC and Culture Club, but that hadn't happened yet. Taylor? I was still nine, so just good cheer. <laughs> what Did you remember what you had for Christmas? Uh... No, probably uh, a couple of records because I, I was just getting into music. But no, my problem is that um, from around this time, all my stories are so ordinary and commonplace that I'd just be, I'd be in Maconeville. Oh, stare away from exciting. that. No, we don't want to go. No, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. It'd just be like, oh yeah, you remember those uh, Astro Wars? Or, no, I never had Astro Wars. I had Galaxy Invader, which was the cheap version. Did you? But yeah, yeah. I think this could have been but, the, yeah, the Christmas where I got uh, got an Atari. So yeah, I was a very popular boy on my street. Oh, I say. Yes. My mate, did, have I told this story before? This is this is sufficiently unusual to not quite be in uh, 
in uh, young comedian you've never heard of on uh, stuff about the old days program territory. Um, my mate down the road had an Atari. Yeah. Um, and his mum wouldn't let any of his mates have a go oh, at right. Because it was like in case they broke it or something. Um, which sort of well, takes well, a bit of the fun away. Just a bit. A, a tar- oh, is this, have you ever seen the controllers? Yeah, of the Atari? Those, they're like joysticks are fucking of, indestructible. Short of putting them into a car crusher, mm. I don't <laughs> see how you could have broken them. That's kind of how they were designed. Yeah. But my yeah. Um, my my stepbrothers had an Atari, so when I went around their house, uh, which is usually on a Sunday. They couldn't fucking kick me out of there. I was there for hours yeah. playing on. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's called Defender or something. But it's basically sort of like a, a linear um, sort of shoot 'em up uh, uh, space machine, space rocket yeah. kind of game. And also there was Frogger, and um, yes. there was this kind of Tarzan thing where you're swinging through the jungle. Oh, uh, Pitfall! Is that it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Landing yeah. on the heads of crocodiles and shit like that. I loved it. Yes. Yeah. So you know that was great. Saw, my sister yeah. used to my sister used to jump on that and um, and do um, kind of like gymnastics routines on the uh, on the crocodile's heads. <laughs> but there was one time I was working. Uh, first magazine job I had was for a Sega Mega Drive magazine, and someone wrote in saying that his mate. This was round about. This is early nineties, so it was Torval and Dean were making a comeback and that. And he had to. He was forced to play. Um, the the Mega Drive with his sister, and the only game he wanted to play was Mortal Kombat. So instead instead of of him and his sister trying to rip each other's hearts out and show it to him before they died, that she she'd insist that she, they put some music on and they would do kind of like dance routines with fucking Raiden and Johnny Cage or whoever it was, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then she'd give give them marks out of ten. So his mate wrote to us to coat him down, and he was duly coated down in the next issue of the magazine. <laughs> so what else was on TV on this sparkly winter's day? Well, BBC One has broadcast Play School, Laurel and Arde, Jack and Ore with Rodney Buse, News Round, Blue Peter, Nationwide, and of course, Tomorrow's World. BBC Two has sent Robert Robinson on a journey across India on Robinson's travels, has just screened Muggeridge, Ancient and Modern, about Malcolm Muggeridge's childhood in Croydon, and it's just about to run a repeat of All Creatures Great and Small. ITV has run Danger Mass, Happy Days, Crossroads, Emmerdale Farm, and is currently showing the film The Way We Were with Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. So yeah, not a not a brilliant day for telly. I don't know. Danger Mouse was just starting, wasn't it? So that that would have been good. I was a bit old for it. I think it's more Taylor's generation that. Yeah, no, a big Danger Mouse fan. Yeah. Happy Days. By this time, you were just bored of it, really, wasn't it? It was. It had its time in the in the late seventies, but by nineteen eighty two, the Fonz just did, didn't seem cool anymore, did it? Are you saying that it jumped the shark? Yes. Yes, exactly. I yes. thought that it was from the fifties. I didn't. I didn't realise when I used to watch Happy Days as a kid. Really, that it was, had just been made. I assumed it must be a program from the fifties. Yeah, right. Happy Days. Right. Mm. Um, in the late seventies, when it was at its peak, that yeah. doll, that the action figure of the Fonz, was the most sought after toy. There was prized possession among mm. my friends. There was this thing like a lever on his back. And he flicks his thumbs up like, hey, you know. Um, but And I always wanted one. I never had one at the time until I bought one in a jumble sale about 10 years ago. Right. And, the trouble, and it's fine. It's in working order. But it doesn't have any shoes or boots. 
So oh, I just, no. I just want to put a shout out, right? If any listeners to Chart Music Podcast have a spare pair of boots for a Fonz action figure, just message me up on Twitter or something. I'd love to hear from you. What, but if it's a swap shop, Simon, um, what would you offer? Um, I, I've actually got um, a duplicate Planet of the Apes action figure. I've got two of them, so I'll, I'll, get rid, I'll swap you a Planet of the Apes action figure for a pair of Fonz shoes. How about that? Oof, that's a that's a very good deal, sir. Yeah, yeah. They're winning on that, I think. Fossilised tree root. Right. Ten centimetres. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're listening and you do have a pair of the Fonz's shoes, bear in mind they're very little Fonz's shoes, please get in touch with us via Facebook or Twitter. All right, then, Pop Craze Youngsters, it's time to go way back to January of 1982. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget... They've been on top of the pops more than we have. Okay, ready, let's do it. Thursday, January the 14th, 1982, and Top of the Pops, under new producer Michael Hurl, is regenerating. They've just introduced a new theme tune, Yellow Pearl by Phil Linnett. They've already expanded the chart out to the top 30, and they've broken it up into three. They've knobbed off Legs and Co and brought in Zoo, and they've weighed down the studio with paper hats, flags, and balloons. Simon, Yellow Pearl, where does that stand in your mind in the in the canon of Top of the Pops theme tunes? It's got this weird kind of um, racist, sinophobic um, yes. lyric going on. I, I don't know what it is. You know, it's uh, Phil, Phil Linet there. He's 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 obviously got some kind of bizarre um, Cold War paranoia creeping mm. in that, that that makes him think that. Um, I mean, Yellow Pearl is is only a, a sort of couple of vowel shifts away from Yellow Peril, isn't it? Yes, and. You know that's that's really what's what's going on here. It's a fantastic record, but yeah, all I'm saying is, check out the lyrics. They're quite mm. eyebrow raising. So your host for this week is Dave Lee Travis. He's cur- oh, good. yes, hurrah! We've already covered him in chart music uh, number two. Yeah, but let's cover him again. Yes, fuck it. Yes, with a with a fucking blanket. He's currently <laughs> doing the late morning slot on Radio One just after Simon Bates, just before Paul Burnett. In August of this year, he'd be moving to Burnett's slot, and then he'd be moved to weekends in 1983. These are the waning years of, of the, the hairy cornflake. His beard has threads of grey, and little shadows come about his eyes. Time can but make it easier to be white. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's not really the hairy cornflake anymore. He's more the kind of like the the hairy breakfast brunch bar, isn't he? Yeah, well, he turns up on this. He's got. Uh, he's trying to be smooth. He's got. Yes, uh, he's a very... double-breasted grey suit, open-neck shirt, wine-coloured handkerchief yes. in the breast pocket. It's not like the old sort of uh, yeah, sort of stripy t-shirt DLT when no. When all the wild summer was in his gaze, he's, um, he's, he, and he's, his his hair and beard arrangement has become perfectly circular. Yes, like a novelty troll door knocker. Yes. Now, what it's like, what it's like, it's like if if you're living in a house share with a bunch of people, and um, you have to pluck uh, the the mixed pubic hairs and hair out of the plug hole <laughs> from, from several different people with different coloured hair, and it comes out in this kind of disc. This kind of poivre, <laughs> this kind of poivre sel disc with just a little hole in the middle, 
that's what Dave Lee Travis looks like at this point. If gollywogs were white, they would be Dave Lee Travis. <laughs> yeah, either that, either that, or a wreath. He looks like a wreath. He looks like a, a wreath to lay at a memorial to shitheads who laid down their lives that men could continue to refer to each other as dipsticks yes. and pilchards yes. and grope tits with impunity. Um, this isn't what was meant by wreathian values. No, no. <laughs> he's on a mission. By this point, he's he's fully on his mission to bully the public mm. into believing that the whole world is a wedding reception <laughs> and it's time for his shit speech. And if you don't want to hear it, what's the fucking matter with you? You fucking misery. Yeah, it's horrible. He's got. Don't you think he's got the unmistakable air of the bully? Yes, mm. right. Not yeah, just because he's a big man. He's very overbearing. And when these stories came out of him throwing his weight around with the female staff it didn't surprise me no the thing is there's lots of different kinds of bullies but what they all have in common is uh that they have nothing to offer mm. right that as human beings they have nothing to offer the world uh and they're so they're so painfully conscious of that fact at some level mm. that what they do instead is to fill that space with an extroverted physical presence. Yes. Like if they take up as much space and as much attention as possible um, and effectively dare people to point out the truth that everyone can see, mm. that by taking up that space, they are at best wasting it and at worst poisoning it. Mm. So, yeah, the, they always come across sort of relaxed, but the desperation is always just beneath the surface. So here... Dave Lee Travis has convinced himself that he's a cool guy who's funny and unique and people like him. Mm. And when you, at first glance, it's nauseating, but if you stare long enough into the abyss that is DLT, it's terrifying. Taylor took the words right out of my mouth, like his Mm. name was Meatloaf. Uh, Because um, even before knowing what we now know about Mm. uh, Dave Lee Travis, I, I always hated him, even then. Um, yeah. His, his humour, uh, and, you know, Taylor's compared it to um, a shit best man speech, which I can't improve on, but mm. it, it was always bullishly unfunny, uh, but, like, almost aggressively unfunny, you know. And even his voice, his voice always sounded gaseous, like, he, like he'd ingested a can of Pepsi too quickly. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that he, by this point, 82, he's a fish out of water. He's a man out of time. Yeah. Um, there were a handful of Radio 1 DJs who were at least a little bit on board with the new wave or the new romantic movement or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Maybe Peter Powell a little bit. Mike mm. Reed just about because he was into the jam. Um, yeah. And that's, that's at a push. But DLT isn't having it at all, is it? I mean, he, he belongs in a permanent... 1975 and yes and it makes it even weirder that he's flanked by these audience members who look like they've been plucked straight out of the wag club Mm, but are they audience members though that's a question we'll be pondering later on in the show thursday night that means it's top of the pot clt here with you for quite some time with a lot of great artists we start off with a number which has moved up four places to this week's number four will you welcome dollar
Travis in a light grey double-breasted unbuttoned suit and a very open neck shirt is flanked by two women with very poor quality face paint, one of which is Dantan Julie Brown of MTV fame. She's a member of Zoo and uh, a former disco dancing champion, as I believe all of them were in one form or another. And they're holding a rectangular compact mirror that looks a bit like an iPhone as he introduces Mirror Mirror by Dollar. By the way, that visual gag, this is the level, isn't it? This is yes. the level at which these people operate. That's the strength of their imaginations mm. and their humour and their general wit. And yet they built empires, <laughs> empires of, of shit, purely because other people were too stupid or too polite to stop them mm. or not help them because of the the bullies spurious self-belief and self-confidence which whatever else you can say about it is more constructive than the realistic uh, self-doubt and self-loathing that the rest of us always feel and <laughs> and to be fair to us would feel even more strongly were we Dave Lee Travis mm. <laughs> and also that it's bad enough having to look at Zoo but we see Travis dancing, don't we? When he Travis introduces yes. this and then does a little sort of uh, a little dance for as long as he thinks the camera's on him, and then yes. immediately yes. stops. Uh, but in fact, it's yeah. still on him, and he doesn't realise. Do you think that's some kind of BBC move? DLT CCTV. <laughs> so, formed in London in 1978 by David Van Day and Teresa Bazaar, Dollar were a spin-off from the group Guys and Dolls who left Stroke were kicked out of the group when they complained about the musical direction they were taking. That was so David Van Day, that was. While Van Day was intent on a solo career, he was persuaded by Bazaar, who he was in a relationship with at the time, to form a duo and they signed with the French record label Carrera. They immediately embarked on a run of four top 20 singles in 1979, but their only single of 1980, Taking a Chance on You, stalled at number 62. They announced that they were getting engaged, but later revealed it was a publicity stunt to promote a dud album. Mm. However, in 1981, Teresa Bazaar approached Trevor Horn, who was making the move from lead singer of The Buggles into a production role and had previously worked with Guys and Dolls and asked him to produce them on their next album. The first single from this collaboration, Handheld in Black and White, got them to number 19 in September of 1981 and this song is the follow-up. It's up from number 8 to number 4. Now, chaps, before we pile into this, as I know you really want to, I, I, I just want to say that the way that certain people go on about this song is as if the fucking record jumps out of the sleeve and makes you your tea and then perform sexual <laughs> favours upon you I mean, people rave about this song and I can't see it so I'm just going to sit back here and I'm going to let my betters explain to me why this song is so important the first mistake you're making is to think of it as a song which it isn't it's not really a, a song at all right uh, it, it only works if you think of it as a sequence of uh, different textures and shifting floors and sudden glows. Neil said in the last show about, I think it was Billy Preston record, that yeah. the problem with it was that it was a record made by a musician. Yes. And I know exactly what he means. Well, this is a record made by a producer, mm. and it's a great example of a record made by a producer. And there's no particular reason why records made by producers should so often be better than records made by musicians, but they almost always are. Um, and... Yeah, this is, I mean, 
everything about this record is synthetic um and you have to throw yourself entirely open to uh that experience well i agree mm. and um, i think that um trevor horn's a genius um i think horn is to the 80s what tony visconti was to the 70s and um, i was actually surprised al that you said that it was Teresa bazaar who approached him and not the other way around mm. because the whole thing to me smacked of you know i think uh, we've, we've mentioned before or maybe i'm imagining this the whole thing with um nile rogers and sister sledge that uh that he took them on almost as a kind of bet because they were yeah. the, the record label's biggest flop. Just nobody could have a hit with them. Mm. And and I, I just thought it was almost, you know, because Dollar at this point were a fading act. They, they'd had a couple of minor hits, but uh, before Trevor Horn got on board, um, they seemed to be yesterday's man and woman. Um, and I, I just got the feeling with the whole project that he was using them. Yeah. Um, the, the previous, I, I mean, I agree with you that Mirror Mirror is fairly flimsy. Um, he didn't produce a whole album for them. He just did four singles. It was a very kind of fleeting relationship. But right. um, the previous single that you mentioned, Handheld in Black and White, is just stratospherically great. Um, mm. it's, it's easily Dollar's finest moment, and it's one of Trevor Horn's finest moment. It was his calling card at that point. Um, and it's a, as much a showcase for his skills, I would say, as Two Tribes or um, Owner of a Lonely Heart. And... Um, and it, it was on the back of working for Dollar that um, he got the gig to produce the Lex Kind of Love for ABC, which is one of the defining albums of the 80s. Yeah. So, so, so Dollar, at this point, are inadvertently changing pop history, um, <laughs> even though you know, they, they don't know it, by agreeing to be Trevor Horn's ventriloquist dummies, pretty much. David Van Day is wearing a dinner jacket and a Lady Diana haircut, while Therese Bazaar is wearing French knickers and a bra with a massive pink bow tie around her waist like an inverse spinal tab Stonehenge prop. It's all a bit naughty knickers week in the sun, isn't it, her outfit? Yeah, well, the thing is, they're trying to suggest a sort of uh, sexual chemistry between them. Mm. But it doesn't quite come off because... Um, uh, this, alas, is not my phrase, but if there was a film of these two fucking, it would have a U certificate. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, David Van Day uh, has that unusual combination of narcissism, sexlessness, and obvious sourness just below the surface. <laughs> you don't often see those three things together. You'll get two of those no, things together, but not all three. And Bizarre has this weird quality of being technically attractive but totally sexless even if you use your mm. imagination right even in the sort of <laughs> depraved male imagination and you have you yeah tried. it doesn't work it, i mean she yeah she's basically wearing black underwear black stockings black high heels loads of makeup bleach blonde hair she's almost totally obscured by obvious signifiers of early 80s sex but she could walk off that stage and go and take a class at primary school and no one would bat an eyelid it's yeah, really weird. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think the bow tie is is supposed to um, denote that all oh, here she is, all wrapped up as a late Christmas present. Yeah, like a show but, dog, or a, yes. a, or, a, or a chocolate egg. <laughs> yes, but, but the effect it gives off is all. Oh, you know the the cocktail dress she was supposed to be wearing didn't arrive in time so just stick this bow tie on no one will notice well there's a weird bit halfway through where they hug each other right they don't yes. embrace or clinch or anything that adults might do they hug each other like each mm. were each other's elderly parent it's 
creepy and it gives a sort of it's like a sort of babes in the wood or you know uh lost children in fucking narnia it's like a sort of mix- <laughs> it's like that moment where um, where donald trump took Theresa may's hand yes oh. <laughs> it is is that it chilling? is really odd it's uh yeah it's not just it's not just that it's non-adult it's like it's anti-adult it's there's something mm. decidedly creepy about it. and when david van day does that you know there's that bit where it goes only in my mirror and it's yes. they, it, it's obviously not him because even if you dropped his voice electronically two octaves he wouldn't be able to do that some force would prevent that from happening so uh, we, i'm 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 kind of um i'm kind of fascinated by david van day's presence in mm. this episode and this year because to me he's such a 70s heartthrob to look at yes you know he's he's who somehow survived into the 80s he looks like a kind of hybrid of um david cassidy and luke skywalker he's, uh, he's, he's 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 a looking he's a looking man not a smash hits man isn't mm. he um he's he's barely changed his hairdo since being in in guys and dolls apart from um, dying in blonde of course uh, but i don't think uh, T- Teresa bazaar's changed that much she, they're, they're both very 70s people mm. and and this this is what fascinates me about, about the whole project of them with trevor horn because at, at this point dollar are an old-fashioned turn yeah. but with mo- but with modern sounding records you know um but you know what though i've got to say even before trevor horn got on board they they had done some decent forward looking stuff i i prefer their um radically minimalist version of i want to hold your hand oh. to the beatles version oh, um, and that Simon. that one that one wasn't <laughs> guys calm yourselves um that one wasn't uh, trevor horn that was christopher neal who who'd also produced dancing in the city by marshall haynes yeah. which is one of the greatest records ever made and um i could be so good for you by dennis waterman which oh. is not um david van day right because I, I live in brighton david van day used to come in my local pub oh um, but yeah, um, but I haven't seen him for a while. I sat on a table with David Van Day once. Jesus. The 2000 World Pole Dancing Championships. <laughs> <laughs> a mate of mine, Maxim, had got uh, got invited. And we sat at a table, and all of a sudden this bloke comes along and, and just says, is anyone sitting here? And I looked up, and it was David Van Day, and I just nodded. And then he summoned his mate over, and uh, his mate sat down. It was Pat Sharp. <laughs> and I, I'd love to tell you stories about how I argued with David Van Day about Bugs Fizz and all that kind of stuff. But I just I, I just looked at my pint because I thought, if I actually say one word to this bloke, <laughs> I'm going to laugh so hard, I'm going to blow a snot bubble that the Montgolfier brothers could have travelled across Paris in. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. And I just thought, I was just waiting for Brian Tilsley to turn up as well to, for the fucking blonde hair hat trick but he's he's not he's not a well-loved man in brighton get uh, away we don't say (laughs) which which um probably isn't surprising as he's self-evidently a terrible human being but um in in 2007 he tried to become a conservative councillor yes but failed to get elected after making homophobic remarks this was in (laughs) kemp town right kemp town which for those who don't know is brighton's gay village yeah smart move mate yeah well also no you know it's not like david van day's ever done anything camp is it no (laughs) 
but that's always the way you look at Donna Summer yeah, you know true. yeah was this before or after he that would be uh, after he became the parasitoid wasp of Buck's Fizz right laying his <laughs> laying his evil eggs in the paralysed corpse and draining draining <laughs> off the, the the remains of its life force <laughs> we 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 have to talk about this documentary. There's no way we can't. So yeah, trouble at the top. When was that? It was kind of like early last decade. Yeah, early uh, t- Taylor, d- d- just give us a give us a, give us a brief synopsis about this m- amazing fucking documentary. Uh, it's about one of the great rock rifts of all time uh, between <laughs> Bobby G and uh, uh, David Van Day when uh, Bobby G uh, trying to keep Bucks Fizz alive hires in David Van Day as a replacement for uh, poor Mike Nolan and uh, it all goes horribly wrong as he doesn't realise he's uh, he's uh, in- inviting the, the wolf into his den <laughs> <laughs> he does come off as the world's biggest cock doesn't he David Van Day in that but Dave Van Day he's a reality TV slag isn't he he's he done is. them all um, yes. I mean didn't he finish with his girlfriend on the Matthew Wright show uh, yes. Like live on air. Yes. And I mean, I've I've got I've got to say I've got no interest in watching all this stuff. Life's too short. But um, my my favourite dollar TV thing is actually not them at all. But it's the piss take on Three of a Kind yes. by Tracy Ullman and David Copperfield sing a soppy song by Dollar, <laughs> which actually um, uncannily nailed something that Taylor just mentioned. That whole dynamic of this saccharine, sweet, seemingly perfect couple mm. who actually kind of loathed they loathed each other behind the Colgate grins which if, if, if you go look and there are some great interviews with Teresa Bazaar where she just completely slags him off you know makes him seem like the most vile human being the thing is ultimately you you both are wrong to think that this is a flimsy record that's what I'm saying I think this is a this is a fascinating and uh, thrilling record now that might just be because uh, I had it on an album called Hits 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 when I was a kid uh, there's a compilation yeah. album which also featured uh, the song Loud Music in Cars by Billy Bremner, which was <laughs> quite confusing <laughs> to me at the time. Um, <laughs> but no, look, it's the, the, all the thought and expertise that's gone into this record. Um, I mean, it almost, almost makes you bitter to think that this is what prog rock could have been, right? The, 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 the dollar are the band that yes could have been right yeah. that's, that's, i mean the i just think it works brilliantly and the fact that people laughed at them for being too commercial which suggests that um they were sort of easy to please or copying something currently popular which when you look at them i don't think that's true there's a sort of hallucinatory quality to all this it's really weird it's someone's strange idea of what commercial is but it's not mm. taken from the world of business. It's taken straight from the imagination. And uh, mm. I mean, and the fact that these two vacuous, preening ghosts are singing a song about narcissism um, yes. and are called Dollar, it's, it does walk the line of maybe being sort of, you know, too showily clever. But I, I don't think so. I think it works because it's so, it's like the conceptual equivalent of a power chord. You know, it's so obvious and direct. Mm. Um, I think it works really well. I, I agree with you about the production. Obviously, it is masterful. But if we're going to look at the four songs that um, Trevor Horn did with Dollar, you've got Mirror Mirror, Give Me Back My Heart, mm. um, Video Tech. Oh, God, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. 
and handheld in black and white. Seriously, what order are we putting them in? I'm going to go handheld in black and white, mirror, mirror, mm, video tech and give me back my heart. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that as well. I've got this at the top. i got give me back my heart at the bottom because I think that's, that is what uh, people accuse Dollar of being. I've got no time for mm. that record. But yeah, I think... Mm. Yeah, that whole la, la, la thing on the backing vocals. Yeah. That sounds like air freshener. Yeah, it's a bit <laughs> much, isn't it? Yeah. But no, I, th- I think this and Videotech are, are genuinely great singles. What it sounds like, you know you know those chocolate rabbits you can get by, is it Gillian <laughs> or something? It's, it's, it's like overdosing on a box of them, isn't it? Mm. Like, give me, give me back my heart, I'm talking about, not Mirror Mirror yeah. particularly. Yeah. But I mean, as, as far as the actual performance goes, we see... We already see a division between Zoo, uh, the the dance troupe, and the punters. The, the Zoo are behind oh. the act, um, waving their compacts, which is quite a premonition of what um, of what musicians have to put up with uh, nowadays. <laughs> Just loads of people wearing <laughs> waving phones at them or whatever. I mean, the, the the one that stuck out for me was the woman dressed up as a metallic clown. See, as a Doctor Who fan, this makes depressing viewing because it's a reminder of what that programme was about to look like for the rest of the 80s. So, the following week, Mirror Mirror dropped down seven places to number 11. It would move up to number eight the following week, but no further. What happened there to make that song drop down seven places? It's probably a January thing, isn't it? You get this kind of like weird stasis for a couple of weeks in the chart. Yeah. Well, I noticed that when they do the rundown, uh, the snowmen are still in the lower reaches of the chart. Yeah, the snowmen. On a previous one of these that (laughs) I wasn't on, uh, you were talking about something that's always troubled me as well, the phenomenon of people going out and buying Christmas records in late January. Mm. It's, there's that, I mean, of all the, of all the patterns that you can find in record buying, that's the one that disturbs me the most because Mm. I, I mean, I is it like when people buy Christmas cards in February and then put them yes. in a drawer because yes. they're only cheap? I'll oh, save it yes. for next year. Yeah. <laughs> the follow-up, Give Me Back My Heart, got to number four in April of this year, but the working relationship grew tempestuous and they split up in early 1983, only to reform a few years later and score a number seven hit in February of 1988 with Ola Moore. They fell out again later that year, but they reformed in 2002 for the ITV show Reborn in the USA, again in 2008 for the living TV show Pop Goes the Band. But when Van Day appeared in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, Teresa Bazaar announced that she would never work with him again. David Van Day was last heard of in 2015 when the Daily Mail reported that he and his current partner were making appearances in care homes in Southend. (laughs) (laughs) Did you not see that, Simon? There's a great clip on YouTube of him getting quite pompous about this and saying, actually, we're bringing joy to some very unfortunate people. Despite the fact that the... (laughs) If you've ever seen the photos of this, that doesn't look like that's what they're doing, but never mind. Haven't they suffered enough? Yeah, they've gone from 80s night to people in their 80s nights. <laughs> <laughs> but he is, he's, he's, he's basically turned into a, into a foppish John Shuttleworth. People who are in care homes now would have, like when this episode was shown, they would have been middle-aged people yeah. just sitting there tutting, thinking, what's his bollocks? Yes. And now, now it's come out to fucking haunt them in their, old, in their, you know, yes. in their twilight years. <laughs> Well, the thing is, in this clip, he's being interviewed with his current, I assume it's his current girlfriend, Mm. uh, but who he performs with. And uh, this 
at one point she makes uh, she makes the point that the they don't do dollar songs they no. do like old tunes you know <clears throat> and she says oh yeah we don't do this because uh, these people wouldn't wouldn't really know them and he just no. flushes her just the filthiest look you've ever seen. <laughs> I, I think the fur would, have, would would fly after the cameras had gone. <laughs> you would, man. If, I had, if my nono was in a care room and I knew that was happening, I'd say, go on, ask for making your mind up. DLT with a girl in fuchsia and some bloke in a territorial army camouflage rig out reminds us that he bangs on all the time on his radio show about the following artist and her latest song, Fool If You Think It's Over by Elkie Brooks. Born in Lane Bookbinder in Salford, Elkie Brooks started singing at the age of 13 and released her first single in 1964. She toured America as a backing singer for the Animals, opened for the Beatles in their Christmas show and worked in cabaret. In 1971, she formed Vinegar Joe with husband Pete Gage and Robert Palmer and went solo in 1974 when they split up. She scored two top 10 hits in 1977 with Pearls a Singer and Sunshine After the Rain, but her last top 40 action before now was in December of 1978 with Don't Cry Out Loud. This single, a cover of the 1978 Chris Rea song, is currently not in the charts. And Taylor, once again, we have the curse of the top of the popsers of this era. Loads of chattering while Elkie's yeah. trying to be a bit sultry in sand-coloured joffers and white blouse. Yeah, you can see this kid in a French Foreign Legion hat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nattering on. And also, um, it, it, we see again my third law, that if the DJ on top of the pops makes a point of saying how good the next song is, uh, yes. and how much they like it, it's going to be something that kids don't like. Um, mm. Although it's what weird. was the example of that? We had an example of that recently, in another episode. It was Simon Bates. Simon Bates making a point that this is really good. This is quality. Yes, can't I can't remember. I have yeah. no use for the past. Okay, um, <laughs> <laughs> get off this fucking podcast. Then it's weird just seeing a not being introduced by Ronnie Corbett in a yes. dinner jacket, though, yes. isn't it? <laughs> I think the first time I actually even heard the name. Elkie Brooks was um, on the two Ronnies when they were doing one of their mm. songs that they do together, some kind of marching song when they're on about going to yes. some fabulous showbiz party and they're listing all the people who are there. And Ronnie Corbett goes, There was Elkie Brooks with all her looks. And they blatantly only put her in there because Brooks rhymes with looks and looks rhyme yeah. with whatever else was coming next. Because I thought. And, well, and Golf Crooks wasn't well known. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, I, I just thought, you know, who, who is Alki Brooks? Um, which mm. I think is a fair question if you're 14 yes. at the time. Um, so people had hard lives in those days, didn't they? Because mm. if you look at it in this clip, um, I mean, I, I don't want to be some kind of, you know, revolting uh, male chauvinist pig judging women on their appearance. Because it applies to men too. We've mm. said similar things about Alvin Stardust. But um, 
she she was 36 when this was mm. uh, broadcast which is the same age that Beyonce is now right but Travis is on home turf isn't he yes he is, yes this is this is this is divorcee he thinks he's got a chance <laughs> he does doesn't he yeah but this yeah, this is really uh, this, this divorcee pop yeah which is you know um, an interesting genre in itself and um, fool if you think it's happening DLT <laughs> my my memory of this song is that um the woman in the house next door um t- to me um bought this record and played it one day 20 times in a row. Oh, and no. I, thought, I mean, I've just given given the content of the song, I thought she's having some kind of breakdown here. You know, mm. um, if it was the modern day, somebody would have said to her, you okay, hun? You know, seriously, yes. playing Fool If You Think It's Over by Elkie Brooks 20 times in a row. It was really quite unsettling. I mean, I, I was... Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ, I just don't know what was going on through those, through those walls. Um, so... Uh, yeah, it's, it's the way that Travis kind of asserts ownership. I mean, what he actually says word for word, I make no secret on my radio shows that I adore the next song. I also happen to mm. adore the singer too. And he says it through gritted teeth oh. with this kind of hint of menace. Like, you know, if you, if you disagree <laughs> with me, I'm going to fill you in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> apparently, there, there was a later performance of, of the, uh, on, on Top of the Pops of, of this song by Elkie Brooks where someone turned up backstage to get her autograph and she sussed out that it was chris rear incognito wow which is really bizarre why would chris rear in 1982 have to go incognito (laughs) well the point being that he'd written the song that she's singing and he was i don't know it's really odd anyway but Mm. i yeah it's all right though isn't it i think yeah that's fair enough yeah i I think it's a good song i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't have liked it at the time no um i yeah, but it's not. It would. It's not for no, it's you not for me. at no, that time, no. is it? That's the thing. Yeah. And it's uh, just just melodically. It's got this beautiful logic to it that every bit follows every other bit. In in its, it's it's almost like like Bach or something like that. The, yeah. the way that um, it's almost mathematically structured. It's also got a kind of Nashville um, feeling to it. I think. And mm. and the the lyrics. Um, just the line. Newborn eyes always cry with pain at the first look at the morning sun. That's almost mm. a Richie Edwards Manic Street Preachers lyric. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, that's precisely what I thought when I heard it as well. <laughs> it's a line out of uh, Faster, isn't it? It's almost exactly yeah, the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I also quite like the drum pattern in this, which, um, if I'm not mistaken, is basically one of the presets on a cheap Casio keyboard. Which is it was, now? You know, you know, do you remember those ones that they're about the width of a modern laptop? Yes. And they, they were cheap enough that you could get them for a birthday present. Yeah. So those Casios. Um, I think the preset, one of the preset rhythms, there's about eight or nine preset rhythms, was do basically you mean the ones, this. Do you mean the ones you, 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 that were left out in WH Smith and kids would just press a button and it would go... Doop, 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 a exactly. bit like... Yeah, um, Trio. You know, um, Da 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 by Trio. One of those ones. And yeah. the um, the quiz round in 3, 2, 1. <laughs> but the, the actual performance, I mean, because of the chattering, because of the disinterest by the crowd. No, the, the there's no zoo action here. They've not even no. bothered. They've not even bothered. So the, the overall effect to me is it's like your English teacher doing a bit of a turn at Christmas assembly, you know, and singing a song, and the kids lose interest very quickly. I quite like I quite like her image because I mean this is parent mm, yeah. rock. You yes. Know. It's like a posh school run in 1982. <laughs> now, what she looks yeah. like is uh, Sarah Jane Smith after half a bottle of gin post-divorce. <laughs> like, no one could match up to the doctor. But it's good. It's um, There's something to be said for this kind of thing. Because it's... Yeah. Also, it's the music for, uh, of people lost in time. Because mm. it's... Yeah, I mean, 36 years old at a point in history when 
that was already quite deep into your long old age. Yeah. Um, I mean, like women of 36 now are doing pills and booking yeah. holidays in Estonia. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Was in, in this, at this point, you were sort of written yeah, off yeah. into a, either into a mellow bird's world <laughs> or, or alcoholic tragedy. Yeah. But she suits the song really well. You know, she, someone who's kind of like, you know, been around for a bit and, and offering sage advice. I mean, the, the 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 sort of the meaning of the song, it's it's essentially she loves you, yeah, 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 isn't it? Yeah, I think it works. Also, because there's, I mean, for women at this time, there was no fantasy eternal adolescence. You know? No. Like, I but mean, she's younger than Mills the Stones. She's, yeah, well, she's significantly younger than, than the Rolling Stones were at this point. Yes. Right? Um, but, you know, she can't carry on like that. Um, no. But it's, I think it's really good. Oh, by the way, I, t- I, I saw a thing recently, because, you know, she still performs now, Elkie Brooks. She lost all her money. Yeah. Because yeah. um, she didn't keep an eye on business, and her uh. manager and her accountant were shit. And she ended up living in her tour bus. But she still performs. And a few weeks ago, um, her drummer uh, that she'd been working with for 30 years disappeared before mm-hmm. a gig. Um, he didn't turn up, and it said in the news story that she hadn't heard from him since. Um, now, she seemed really angry about it. And she said, oh, you know, he's really let me down and stuff. Well, mm. I was thinking, this bloke is obviously over 50, yeah. and he's a fucking drummer, right? <laughs> and he's disappeared without trace. Um, I'd be more concerned than angry. Mm. It's like saying, you know, I live next to the M1, and my cat's gone missing. What a selfish <laughs> cunt. Yes. <laughs> Well, this is why I she mean, needs a Casio with the presets on it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing that's always fascinating me about Elkie Brooks um, is, is that she's got different sized nostrils. Um, and and, right. and I, I wonder if, that's, if that is a legacy of having been in Vinegar Joe with Robert Palmer in the 70s. Mm. Yeah. A band once described by Clive James as looking like an angry armpit, which... Um, <laughs> Is is on on the money, Rooney? She's also she was a special favourite of Mike Dickin, oh. the, the late bellicose right wing talk sport presenter yes. of the late nineties and early two thousands. Elkie Brooks was his fa- his favourite singer. Um, I know uh, Simon is with yes. us. We uh, <laughs> as lifelong insomniacs, we would sometimes <laughs> sometimes have Mike's. Uh, uh, Daily Mail informed opinions uh, soundtracking our non-sleep <laughs> really? um, yeah. so the following week fall if you think it's over enter the charts at number 57 and we'll get to number 17 in February the follow up Our Love failed to make the top 40 and her last major hit appeared in January of 1987 when No More The Fool got to number 5 uh, she was also in uh, Reborn in the USA as well but she she kept a distance from the uh, the spat between David Van Day and Sonia. He was a right cunt, David Van Day was. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, lovely song and a great singer. Right, the highest new entry in, in the... There's a foreigner beyond. The highest new entry in the charts this week is at number 13, and it's that amazing rocker himself, Shaken Stevens and old Julie! Yeah. 
Travis is back by someone in a rat-like costume as he introduces the next act, and he refers to that rat-like costume person as a foreigner. Well, hang on a minute, yeah, because it's so, it's it's not a rat-like suit because it becomes clear in the link afterwards that it's someone in a gorilla suit, and he's no, that's a different person in it? a gorilla suit. Yes, I looked at this long and hard. Oh, have you? It's a different. Yeah, there's two it's of a, them. It's a there's two of them. Yes. The terrible thing might, is though, might that be this, dollar. This this foreigner actually looks a lot like Dave Lee Travis. Yes, <laughs> it's this hideous uh, hirsute visage. But either way, rat or gorilla, what could he possibly be getting at? What does this tell us about yeah. uh, Dave Lee Travis's kind of political sympathies at the time and his view on matters like immigration? Well, he worked in Germany for for a very long time, didn't he, on Beat Club? Yeah, harassing whatever her name is, the female presenter of yeah. Beat Club, who is visibly not happy with no. being manhandled all the time by her wacky English co-host. So, Shaking Stevens, born in Cardiff in 1948, Michael Barrett was a milkman and occasional pub singer in 1967 when he joined the Backbeats and changed his name to Shaking Stevens and the band's name to The Sunsets. They supported the Rolling Stones in 1969, played benefits for the Young Communist League, dedicated their first LP to Karl Marx and sold badges at gigs that read Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets, Heterosexual Rock and Roll. (laughs) (laughs) I want one. Yes. In 1977, he was spotted by the pop impresario Jack Good, who invited him to audition for his West End musical about Elvis, and he appeared as the king in his prime alongside PJ Probe. This led to appearances on the revived ITV rock and roll show Oh Boy and an inevitable solo career. His debut single, Hot Dog, made it to number 24 in March of 1980. He's already scored two number ones with This Old House and Green Door, and this single is the follow-up to It's Rain which got to number 10 in October of 1981. It's also the first single written by Shaky himself, and it's the highest new entry this week at number 13. I mean, I've, I've, got, I've, I've got a bit of a personal interest in this, I suppose, because, uh, well, being Welsh, being from Cardiff, and um, I, I kind of know Shaky. I've met him a few times, and my dad knew him and stuff. Right. Um, I, I like him. Um, he's, he's, a, he's an unusual man, though. He's... Um, He's, he's a man right. of, he's a man of few words he's, mm. he's quite but a lot of shakes a lot of a lot of moves a lot of shakes um i i love the fact that he has this whole backstory about being a communist in the 60s and 70s <laughs> um there's a, a place in my hometown of barry called uh, it was the railwayman's club but it's now like some kind of um disco for young people as it should be uh, but um, yes in in the 70s um shaking stevens and the sunsets would regularly play there sort of raising money for the union which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with their heterosexual rock and roll. With it, yeah, and I do want one of those badges. So if anyone out there has got that, I'll swap you maybe um, a dollar of the Fonz with boots for a wow. heterosexual rock and roll badge. Um, and I'll, I'll, wear, I'll, I'll wear that badge on my Manic Street Preachers t- uh, top that says, all rock and roll is homosexual. And let, Excellent. The, let the two of them fight it out. It's like that, you know, um, you know the comedian Stephen Wright? He had, he had this line that he goes, uh, for my birthday, I was given a humidifier and a dehumidifier. I just locked them in a room and let them fight it out. <laughs> so I'm imagining a similar thing. Um, he's a bit of a loner. He's, he's a, you know, he's a loner, is shaky. So it's kind of surprising that he was ever in a band. Mm. If you look at him in this performance, it's kind of jarring that he doesn't have 
a backing band because the music is kind of very yeah. busy up tempo kind of cajun zydeco kind of s- sound going on mm. uh, but there's nobody there playing it it's just him uh, very exposed on the stage doing his doing his, his shapes um yeah but he commands that stage doesn't he yeah. with his hips and his legs um, and um, whatnot his, his whole thing of having white shoes that was quite um quite daring i think at the time uh, yeah that was yes. a look which you know yes. would later be taken up by people like the strokes and noel fielding or whatever yeah. but at the time shaky was on his own um did, did you know by the way that uh, he he did a gig at Yulu University of London Union in October 1976, where he was supported by the Clash. Really, this is amazing, right? Fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the Clash. It's like the Clash's fifth or sixth gig or something like that was supporting Shaking Stevens at at Yulu, and um, it was full of tents, mm. obviously, as you'd expect. And one of them menacingly went up to Mick Jones and gave him five pence and said, "That's your fair home, mate." <laughs> and um, the Clash then had to barricade themselves in their dressing room door because angry Ted's wanted to beat them <gasps> up. Um, different times. But um, Shaggy was 33 when, when this yes. was broadcast. And and I, I kind of wonder, I think, you know, because he's, he's a good-looking man in mm-hmm. those days, and I wonder if he appealed equally to 12-year-old girls and sort of 37-year-old mums. I, I mm. really don't know. But it, this isn't anywhere near his best. No. Uh, I, I put his, his best singles would probably be Give Me Your Heart Tonight, mm. um, which I, I like the kind of bossa nova thing there. Um, the cover version he did of uh, It's Raining. And uh, Marie Marie, his second single, that's banging, yeah. absolutely banging. But I've got no, not much time for this at all, to be honest with you. It's hard, it's hard, it is hard to dislike uh, Comrade Shaky. Um, yes. Because <laughs> there's no swindle, do you know what I mean? There's no swindle here. All he says is, hello, do you want to see me do a weak Elvis impression and sing a 50s pastiche? And then he does it. And it's like, yeah. you know those clowns at the seaside where you put 10p in and they cackle horrifically. But that's all that they said it was going to do. So it doesn't yeah. matter. Um, he's all right. Well, the thing I don't like most about this record is the accordion. Um, yeah. I know it's supposed to sound Cajun and everything, but it doesn't really come across. There's no, no accordion. It's a bit Italian any, restaurant, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there's no accordion on any 50s rock and roll record. So no. uh, puts your mind to the majesty of French rock, um, mm-hmm. which is not what anyone needs. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not directly French. It's Louisiana French, isn't it? So it's people like yeah. Rockin' Dopsy and stuff like that is what he's trying to yeah, be like. I mm. can't hear it, though. I can't hear it, partly and, um, because... It was that woman who sang um, Don't Mess With My Tutu. Yeah. Um, oh, Denise you know LaSalle, yeah. Yeah, Denise LaSalle, it's all that kind of stuff, yeah. It doesn't come across to me partly because the way the record is produced, which is a big mush, right? Like, it's the 80s. Mm. The, um, there's actually a semi-decent 50s-style guitar solo in the break, mm. but uh, you can't hear it because it's, right. it's buried in the depths. And it's like they didn't realise that what makes those, like, Scotty Moore guitar solos sound so great is that they're loud and they leap mm. out of the speakers at you. They're not buried under a fucking accordion. Um, yeah. But, you know, he's all right. He's all right. It, it, he wrote this, didn't he? Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he's, it's yes. Like, it's like if you spend your whole life singing 1950s songs, sooner or later you realise how piss easy it is to write a <laughs> mediocre one. Yes. Uh, although Barry Manilow covered it. So it, I would imagine... Yeah, I would imagine he made a, a bit out of yes. that. Yes. But it it's strange, his faulty hologram of Elvis. It's like mm. uh it's like if Elvis had been drained and autoclaved. Um basically it's like if Elvis had worked on a chair plane in Rill. <laughs> <laughs>
and it's you know that's you just not, aroused about. Yeah, it's you know it's that's. It, there's worse things. Hey, Taylor, that. you might remember this. Do you remember when Shaking Stevens was a Britpop landlord? Oh, this rings a bell. Uh, this does this ring amazing, a bell. I right? can't remember the detail. Right. There was um, a block of maisonettes uh, in Camden, just off uh, York Way, um, where uh, Kanicki, the band, lived for a while, and so did mm. Menswear. And uh, Menswear had been there for, I don't know, probably uh, they'd been there for just coming up to a month, and they get the knock on the door for the landlord collecting the rent. They open the door. It's fucking shaking Stephen standing no. there. Yeah, he had invested some of his, uh, some of his O'Julie millions in, in, uh, in property in Camden Town. A fair play. Right. And, and this, 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 then led, sorry, this then led to this uh, ongoing joke because directly opposite uh, Sainsbury's on Camden Road, there was a little late night convenience store called Green Door. And oh. we, were, we were all convinced that that was Shakey's as well, but we never found out what was going on behind the door. No. <laughs> I mean, presumably an old piano being played hot. Uh, yes. Yeah. So he'd come to look at this old house that he owned. Yay. Exactly. To see if it was, get, if it was getting shaky. Yeah. Imagine like menswear complaining like these, these uh, shingles need fixing. Yes, <laughs> uh, but alas, and of course we get we do get the pleasure of, of seeing the actual Julie, don't we? Uh, which is someone by Zoo who looks like someone shaky and have absolutely no interest in whatsoever. But almost certainly was called Julie. You're being mm. watched closely from the audience by that bloke in the army jacket, like the fox, and uh, and yes. a black guy dressed as an RAF. <laughs> you know, well, if I was watching Top of the Pops with, with my dad which is what I, I did round about this time, just to see his reaction to people like Boy George and Mark Almond. He'd, he'd cheer up a bit and his knee would start going. And he'd go, oh, this is, this is fucking proper music, this is. <laughs> and like talking of proper music, Shaky has now gone full circle in that his most recent album is his kind of rootsy country rock album about his family history. So, wow. you know, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's gone. He's, he's left a kind of... Uh, Elvis impersonations behind and doing a Johnny Cash impersonation, I guess. Yeah. It's called Coal Dust on My White Shoes. Yes. <laughs> so the following week, Oh Julie soared up to number three and would be number one the week after that for one week. The follow-up, Shirley, would get to number six in May of 1982 and he'd have three more top 20 hits in 1982. I can't remember that song. It was probably the same thing. He probably thought, oh, I'm, I'm onto something here, doing songs about girls. Yeah, Marie. Yeah. Oh, oh, Shirley, Julie. won't you be my yeah. girly? Perhaps. <laughs> oh, oh, Tracer, why don't you come and chase me? Let's get a little bit racy. <laughs> Shaking Stevens would spend more weeks in the top 40 over the 80s than any other band or artist. He dominated the 80s with his... Totally, yeah. Well, he's never off shoes. Top of the Pops. You no. only watch the early Top of the Pops. He's on it every fucking week. Yeah. About three years. And if it's not yeah. him, it's some other rockabilly revivalists like Matchbox yeah. or the Polecats. It's, I suspect there were uh, producers or production team members of a certain age. Now, we're, we're very proud of that stat in Wales. Basically, Shaky and Bonnie were to the 80s what um, Tom and Shirley were to the 60s. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, right, Shaky Stevens, well done, kid. Number 13 in the charts. We now have a competition for the BBC cameraman. See who can keep Claire in focus. Number 7 in the charts, it's Alton Images. <laughs> Travis is flanked by a woman with crimped hair and a spiky dog collar on one side and someone in a gorilla costume on the other. He sticks his hand into one of their mouths. Fortunately, it was the gorilla. <laughs> Don't you think that that woman is dressed like a female adamant, right? I think that's what she's going yeah, she's for. She's aiming for it, yeah. It's basically Eve Ant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he introduces I Could Be Happy by Altered Images. Formed in Glasgow in 1979, Altered Images sent off a demo tape to Susie and the Banshees and then found themselves supporting them in 1980 and becoming a regular fixture on the John Peel show. Their first two singles failed to chart, but their third, Happy Birthday, got to number two in October of 1981, held off the top spot for three weeks by It's My Party by Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin, <sighs> and Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic by The Police. Boo. Oh, what a different world it would have been. Yeah. This is the follow-up single, and it's up this week from number 10 to number 7. And of course, DLT says, you know, the, the cameraman's got to follow Claire around. Um, I, I don't know if that was uh, on his personal um, command or something <laughs> yeah. for later on. Yeah, but after hours. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's step away from that one. Altered Images, seen as the, the, the band to watch in 1982. And they're kind of like living up to that two weeks into this year. Yeah, it's weird with Altered Images because if you listen to their very early stuff, it's quite kind of spiky post-punk. Um, yeah, 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 dead pop stars. Um, but well, they were Susie his... and the Banshees uh, rip-offs, weren't they? Um, yeah, but, and... yeah, but, but, um, but ripping off specifically one Susie and the Banshees song, Hong Kong Garden, just that. Uh, which is a good one to rip off. Yeah. This is another producer-led record, uh, even yeah. though you don't necessarily think of it that way. In fact, I think the producer might even mm. have been the bloke from Susie and the Banshees, but um, if I was no, better um, rehearsed... No, I, I can tell you, um, I can tell you it's produced by Martin Rushant, who produced Dare. Ah. Now that so, makes um, an awful lot of sense. Yes, yeah, 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 because it's got that brightness to it. And I think that that's what you see happening when music shifts from 81 to 82. You see the monochrome shifting into colour in a big way in 1982. That's what's going mm. on. And um, just taking Martin Rushant and Dare and the Human League as the, as the example of this, um, in about 12 months, the Human League went from um, Sound of the Crowd to Mirror Man. Mirror Man being the, you know, a very mm. 1982 record and Sound of the Crowd, a very 1981 record. So, um, Altered, Altered Images, they kind of had a foothold in, uh, in 81, but 82 is, is where they're at home because it's all about the primary colours. Mm. I, I actually prefer the next single, um, See Those Eyes, but that, th this is something that I, I always find myself mm. doing on these podcasts is complaining that we've got the wrong song, you know, <laughs> that no, no, yeah. there's a song before, another song after is better. Um, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I did, I, f I felt quite fondly towards Altered Images. I didn't like this song very much, um, but I like her mm. from, um, particularly from the film Gregory's Girl, which I really liked at the time. Um, yeah. But again, I mentioned earlier on the piss take of, of Dollar by Tracy Ullman on Three of a Kind. You know yeah, where I'm going. I know, I know where um, this is going. I, I was wrong about Not the Nine O'Clock News uh, having finished by this point because, of course, Pamela Stevenson does the happy, crappy, nappy song. Yes. Um, so, yes. <laughs> which is actually, it's, it, you know, it, 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 it's, it's route one, it's easy comedy, but 
She fucking nailed it. It was spot on. <laughs> because at this time, and, and even now, Claire Grogan's seen as the wee Jimmy Cranky of new pop. But this is a dark tune, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's all about being stalked and trying try, try to wriggle out of a, you know, a, a relationship you don't want to be in. Um, mm. I th- there's that, been that story in the news recently about the guy playing a piano for hours and hours on, yes. on that green in, in, in Bath because his girlfriend won't come back to him. Um, this yeah. is almost like the other side of that story, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, he got lumped, though, which was heartening news. By Claire Grogan. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> who, who then went to climb high in a tree. And swim a mile down the Nile. Yes. <laughs> See, I, I do love this record, but I'm not much of a Claire Grogan fan. I can understand why, at the time, uh, it would have seemed radical or at least refreshing. But decades mm. down the line, it's a little bit much. I mean, she doesn't come across as stage school by virtue of a no. near total incompetence as a singer and performer, <laughs> but mixed with this sort of um, cheerful awareness of that. Uh, but it is a bit trying for the same reasons. Um, and I totally understand why at the time this was seen as preferable to being cool or trying to be cool. Mm. Um, yeah. But ultimately what you're looking at here is a female Freddie Garrity so you know you either you either dig that or you don't but it is a good record it is a good record um, you basically just yeah. just ruined the kind of adolescent fantasies of a whole generation yes. of men yes oh sorry but it's the thing I is that it is a great record because um it's all handled so well in the production like her remarkably bad singing um mm. is beautifully produced like he's coached her to not hold any note for longer than a split second and then buried mm. and echoed the whole thing in a way where it doesn't sound offensive even though none of it is in tune um th- yeah. this record is a mini miracle what it also does is simultaneously accentuate and cover up for the sloppiness of the group and that becomes the selling point yeah. so you hear it and this record is uh refreshing because it doesn't sound slick but at the same time it does sound slick because of how it's presented so yeah um, yeah martin russian brings this this real kind of crispness and this real brightness to the guitars basically russian does mm. does for the guitars on this what he did for the synths on something like love action by the human league it's got that yeah. kind of sunshine quality to it um, yeah. I, although you know, I, I actually preferred Altered Images, um, uh, the single from their third album, "Don't Talk to Me About Love." It's a bit kind yeah. of disco. That was a fantastic record. Yeah. But as for this actual performance, I mean, Claire Grogan, she kind of she dances like a mad auntie, um dancing at a baby in a wedding do. <laughs> And the, the Kens of the band are that they've all been togged out by Burtons, apart from the drummer who looks a bit goth and a bit confused because he's kind of like, why am I drumming so fast? What's going on? The drummer looks like he sells speed, but he, he doesn't look like he uses it, at least <laughs> uh, not not today. <laughs> the thing about this, the band, is that um, you can always tell when these bands have got a bit of money put behind them because they turn up with these uh, expensive classic guitars, like these mm. sort of 1960s Gretches and stuff. <laughs> um, it's always a telltale sign of a like an indie band that's uh, got a bit of cash infu- a bit of a cash infusion. And also, I they say, just get a Telecaster, because after playing one of those things, it's like getting out of a transit van and into a sports car, just saying. <laughs> 
<laughs> and we actually get two whole seconds of, uh, of the audience. There's a lot of white frilly blouses and uh, ski jumpers, which were uh, definitely on trend in January of 1982. And probably the first... Uh, appearance of the wedge haircut as well yeah i think 82 is probably the year that neuromantic broke you know i think it's the year that mm. it actually caught on in the rest of the country mm. um it, throughout 81 and a bit of 80 people were watching visage and duran duran or whatever on top of the pops yeah. but they didn't yeah. they didn't know where to get those clothes on their local high street by 82 you can buy that stuff on your high street oh, avante at cna simon yeah by this point in 82, your local hairdresser can give you a kind of, you know, um, princess dye haircut and can give you yeah. kind of Marco Pironi type threads, as we're going to see in another performance. Surely. That's like, I remember um, in the late yeah. 80s, try, me trying to dress 60s, uh, and it was a, a, a bit of a problem because there weren't any good charity shops where I lived. And you'd go into like a high street shop like <laughs> Mr. Byright or whatever, and you, you're looking for, I was looking for like a, you know, like the original Breton shirt, right? <laughs> to try and look like Brian Jones or something. And they did sell, they did sell. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. White shirts with the uh, blue hoops but you couldn't find one that didn't have a pocket on the breast yeah, with a the no wheel good. of a <laughs> ship on it. it it's not it's not the same no the thing with this record is um it's actually quite influential i think altered images are quite an influential mm. band that whole kind of sound of young scotland even though they weren't on postcard records uh were they no. i think they were um you had, you had all these bands like, you know, Orange Juice and Joseph K, maybe the Bluebells. There's a lot of this kind of jangly stuff coming out of Scotland. And I, I think maybe it's because Scotland sat out punk. I'm struggling mm. to name um, a, uh, an important Scottish mm. punk band. Can any, anyone think of one? No. I, I can't think of, of a Scot. It's like, it's like Scotland watched punk happening. I thought, okay, Just like that's, we that's watched all, the World know, Cup funny going on. of 1974 and 78. Yeah, yeah. But- I think it was a risky yeah, yeah, yeah. place to dress as a punk in 1977. Yeah. But, you know, by this point, you've got Aztec Camera, uh, and, yeah, all those other bands I mentioned, maybe a bit later on, Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, all that kind of chiming, big guitars, big jangly guitars, um, which I think led directly, and whether this is a good thing or a bad thing is, you know, dilute to personal taste, but C86 and that kind of cutie pop, bands like The Primitives probably, and Primal Scream and so on, wouldn't have happened without this... Uh, generation of uh, you know 
quite quite flimsy but quite kind of upbeat Scottish jangly bands. So the following week I could be happy drop back down to number 10. Fucking hell, this is a bad episode of Top of the Pops for that. The follow-up, See Those Eyes, got to number 11 in April of this year and they made the top 10 one more time with Don't Talk To Me About Love in April of 1983 and split up later that year. The Stranglers played the pub circuit of the mid-70s and were dragged into the burgeoning punk scene when they supported Patti Smith and the Ramones, but were always seen as a bit too old and proficient by the music press. Nevertheless, they had a run of five top 20 hits in late 1977 to mid-1978 before a series of diminishing returns set in. This is their 15th single release and their second cut from the 1981 LP La Folie. It's the follow-up to Let Me Introduce You to the Family, which only made it to number 42, but Golden Brown has been made single of the week by Radio 2, and it's a new entry at number 25. It's hard to say anything much about this record, because it's good, but in such a dry and dislikable and disagreeable way. It's like something beautiful that's being delivered like an expectoration, you know. It's really (laughs) charmless and flat, but... Once you get past that, it's a good record, but why do you want to go mm. past that? You know? I love this song. I thought it was brilliant then, and I think it's brilliant now. A lot of its appeal does come from the contrast, of course, between the record and them, like their image and what they're like. I mean, they are an authentically unsavoury bunch of human beings, right, the stragglers, just to yes. look at. Um, like, if you look at it, like, Hugh Cornwell is... Uh, you wouldn't accept a lift from this man, you know. The worst one is uh, Dave <laughs> no. Greenfield, the keyboard player, who the, one of the most inappropriately named men in pop because he doesn't look like he's seen a Greenfield in his life. If you look at him in this clip, yeah, he should be called he should be called Jet Black, and Jet Black should be called Dave Greenfield. Yeah. Don't you think? They should you switch see him names. playing the harpsichord in this clip, and he looks like one of those fifteenth-century monks that boiled and ate four hundred children. It's <laughs> It's horrible. You put him in a purple robe and a silver crucifix that he, he in an amicus film perfectly. But it's what's so weird is that they still felt the because this is just what they look like. They can't help it. This is what they are, and yet they decided yeah. to push this sort of less than salubrious image and give themselves a name like the Stranglers. And it's like when Katy Perry yes. did that which put fireworks on her tits. It's like, you didn't really need to do that mm. because it's not no. as if nobody was looking at them already. It's They, they could have been called the, you know, they could have called themselves the twitchy-nosed hamsters and dressed like Giles Brandreth. Yeah. And they still would have been irredeemably seedy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's almost redundant to talk about the Stranglers being nasty pieces of work because that was the whole deal we can talk about david van day being a nasty piece of work there's some mileage yeah. there's mileage in that because he was pretending yeah. to be something else the stranglers mm. were just you know yeah that's it what you see is what you get and you know yeah. if anything they were sort of playing it up for for, for sort of you know to, to look cool all these kind of stories about 
locking journalists in the boot of the car and dumping them yeah. in the middle of Spain and all that I think stuff. their greatest service to mankind is providing us with a litmus test for the soul because there are people on Earth who say they prefer the Strangler's version of Walk On By, like unaware that they're standing on a trapdoor mm. and my finger is on the fucking oh, button. Yes. God. <laughs> but, I mean, I knew about the Strangler's for, like, years before this. I mean, my mate Andrew Burr, I uh, uh, got a copy of Something Better Change in around about 77, 78 and we would <clears> nip out of junior school on the dinner hour just to play it and mime to it for about five times in a row. Well, you mime to it, but by standing totally still and scowling. <laughs> <laughs> That's what teenagers do, basically, yeah. Set the Stranglers about thirty-five, you know. It was yeah, it was it was more kind of like jumping on the settee because that's what we thought the Stranglers did. Yeah, I mean, I I bought Duchess. I like Duchess. That was yeah. a good song. I bought that so the, they were known about. So this song was quite a shock when it came out because it was uh, a bit more tuneful and a bit more a bit mellow, if you will. I think right. Uh. I, I associate it with the older kids at school. Um, Mm. Who, you know, sort of six formers who probably would prefer prog to anything kind of new wave. So, yeah. and this this song because it had an unusual time signature. Uh, mm. You know that it was it was difficult, therefore it must be good. If something's difficult to play, that is yeah. quality. Um, yes, but yeah, I, I, are we gonna? I mean, the elephant in the room is is the whole the whole drug thing, right? Um, yes, I mean supposedly. It's about heroin, is that right? And I hate that. Yeah, apparently I, so. I, I hate songs that are really about drugs. If if you're if you're tuned into it, you know, I fucking hate. Yeah. I hate that whole thing. I really, really dislike that whole thing with "Perfect Day" by Lou Reed and um, even the Jesus Mary Chain. Some candy talking, like ooh, yeah, what's another the, girl, another planet. Oh isn't fucking! I, I I really dislike it. I dislike that kind of tap tap on the side of the nose thing. Of oh, of course, you know, yeah. you know what they're really singing about, don't you? Oh fuck it! Perfect Day is about having a lovely day in the park. And this, yes. this is about, I don't fucking know, their favourite colour of curtains. Yeah. yeah, just come out with it. If, they, if they'd have done this song and they'd, they'd called it Drugs Are Mint. Yeah. Never a frown, because drugs are mint. Well, I say good for them, because uh, mm. as far as I'm concerned, the nice thing about heroin is that it's a way for other people to be happy without me feeling resentful of them. Which is some, <laughs> something of a win-win, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Quite rare so when for did, you as well. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you find out that this was a drug song? Because I can remember oh. it, the exact moment. Oh, go on, my, dad, my dad storming in from the pub one night and saying, hey, you're not listening to that fucking Golden Brown, are you? Because it's about fucking drugs. <laughs> and I just went, oh, is it now? Oh, <laughs> I'll look into this. What, had it been because in the, the papers time, or something? Probably, well, someone at the pub probably told oh, him. Right. You know, my dad, you got all his information from what someone in the pub had told him. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> because, of course, at our school, it's 1982, it's still glue. You know, glue's the thing. Yeah. And, you know, you used to have all these adverts about heroin, and we'd be like, well, how'd you get hold of that then? Well, that's it. Yeah, when Morrissey was singing, uh, and the Queen is dead, I swear to God, I swear I never even knew what drugs were in that weird yodel. <laughs> um, I'd ne- I didn't know what drugs were either at that point. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that noise anymore. But, no. Um, yeah, I, so so when the, str- you know, the, the fact that the Stranglers might have been, they could have been singing about fucking anything for, for all I knew. Yeah. I, I didn't know what heroin meant. 
but just yeah. as, as an adult now, I, I don't like that kind of uh, misdirection and that kind of deception that's going on of trying to sneak a naughty drug song past the censors, you know? Mm. Well, no, one, no one's told Zoo because they provide a <laughs> sort of interpretive dance to this, which suggests yeah. they've interpreted this song like rather as a moth interprets Urdu poetry. By, by flying into a lit window over and over again. <laughs> and they are all dressed as uh, Marco Pironi. Four yes. of them. Men and women dressed as Marco Pironi. Oh, yeah, Eve and yeah. She's one of, the, one of the zoo members uh, dancing <laughs> to this song. Yeah. Well, there we yes. go. Yeah, and don't the band look glad for this uh, bit of help? <laughs> it's what they would have looked like anyway. Have they ever looked glad for anything, ever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But by this point, the zoo are really kind of like stamping their authority on this episode, aren't they? There's too much dancing in this. I'm going to come on to this in a minute. There's yeah, way to, too yeah. much dancing. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Let's let's say zoo, that. Zoo, let's certainly should say zoo are stamping on this episode. So the following week, Golden Brown jumped up to number sixteen and would spend two weeks at number two behind a town called Malice by the Jam. The follow-up, La Folie, would only get to number forty-seven, but Strange Little Girl, a tune they demoed in nineteen seventy-four, made it to number seven in August of this year. Of course, Gold Golden Brown had a kind of second life um, about six or seven years ago uh, during the, the the brief reign of our. Um, last but one prime minister um yes but it didn't quite work. people kept singing never a frown with gordon brown but yeah uh, it, it didn't quite work because he did frown a lot but what you did get yes. with gordon brown was this really disturbing sex face between sentences when he pauses <laughs> for breath which yes. is and he was on heroin um, and he was yeah. on heroin I'm, I'm kind of um in the video for golden brown um as well as looking as generally kind of disreputable as as he already does um hugh cornwell is really sweaty he's got this kind of mm. horrible clammy looking sweat on his upper lip and now in my mind's eye i'm kind of combining that with the kind of slack mouth of gordon brown when <laughs> when he's either on the vinegar strokes or he's pausing for breath in the middle of a speech <laughs> Uh, Thank um, you, Simon. This is maybe the moment that in Smash Hits they go snip. I don't know. Yes. Before I go any further with it. Youth Team Disco Championships at Hammersmith Palais a little while ago. Here's the winning mob from Princess Park dancing to Cool and the Gang. Travis speculates that we can recall the results of the National Youth Team Disco Dancing Championships. So I said, well, it was a blinded one, wasn't it? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And introduces a troupe called Princess Park, or they're from Princess Park or something like that. He says they're from Princess Park. So I'm going to refer to them as Princess Park, which is going yeah. to be a bit confusing because that's the name of um, the, the team that uh, Hotshot Hamish is in, in, uh, in, in Roy the Rovers. <laughs> and he tells us that they're going to dance to get down on it by Cool and the Gang. Formed in New Jersey in 1964 as the Jazzy Axe and then Cool and the Flames, Cool and the Gang were a funk band who went a bit disco in the late 70s when James Taylor joined as lead singer. 
and they made their chart debut in late 1979 with Ladies Night, which got to number nine. This is their seventh top ten hit, and the follow-up to Stepping Out, which got to number 12 in May of 1980. And it's up from number seven to number three. What do we talk about? Because here, we've got a dance routine, but we've also got the video of the song as well. That video, that weird effect, that kind of stuttering Isn't effect. It? What's the Isn't word for that? Isn't it the most it's, unwatchable video ever? It's really weird, yeah. It's the same effect as the, in Bohemian Rhapsody, and also there's a Jackson's video. Uh, Can you feel it? Oh, yeah. Ten, yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving trails. But on this, they really have just pushed it up to 10. It's yeah. like yeah. kids when they get an, uh, like an effects box, and I just put it on 10. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah. It's actually yeah. a screensaver. It's like a screensaver. We have one well, of those things that gradually covers every bit of the screen and then starts again. Well, it's, it's essentially like watching a video on YouTube through your fucking Commodore 64, isn't it? It's just fuck. I, 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 I do wonder if the BBC engineers received this video and just sent it back and said, uh, yeah, you've, you've sent, sent us a duff copy. It's unwatchable. Yeah, I mean, that, that probably explains why they've cut it 50-50 with this dance troupe. But it does, yes. it does give you an authentic LSD feel. Uh, I mean, this, right. this video looks like the 1990 Glastonbury Festival looked to me, <laughs> which is a, a sweet memory. But intercut with these disco champions to sort of bring you back down to earth, you know. Yeah. Upstaged yeah. as they are by a Doctor Who extra high kicking in the background. The BBC have obviously gone, well, we can't show this because people think the, the fucking crispy pancakes for the, for the tea has been laced with drugs. I, I don't think they're very good. I, no, I mean, I'm sure. No, they're not. The, the, they're the rubbish, dancers, aren't they? they? They're doing kind of leapfrogs and um, kung fu roundhouse kicks. And then they're very literally getting down on it, getting down on the floor yes. in, in a manner that Flick Colby would have would have approved of, you know. The, so, I mean, if, if, if these guys won, I don't want to think about who came second. Yeah, who, was, who came second? Fucking hell. Fucking Davros. Also, it's the kind of dancing where everyone else in the disco has to get out of the way. Which, <laughs> yeah. Which can always and eternally get fucked, because who needs it, you know? No. And it's a bit obvious no. to make them dance to this as well, right? What they should have done is uh, made them dance to Shaking Stevens and say, yes. like it or lump it, because a good dancer yeah. can adapt. Yes. And, and Shaky could, like, buckle his legs to get out of the way of their roundhouse yes. kicks. <laughs> That's right. You know, there's yeah. no way they're bringing him down. I mean, we're talking about 1982. So by the, by this time, you know, there's there's kids in America, whoa, particularly New York, who uh, are kind of, you know, busting some other kind of moves. And I, I look at this this troupe and I just think, mm, you're not, you wouldn't last very long on the street. I'm sorry, I'm obsessed now with the idea of shaking Stevens having a fight with him. With like four, <laughs> four of them coming at him, and he's just like, like he's quite hard actually, shaky. I can imagine. I mean, we've seen we've seen what he did to Richard Madeley. He shakes, but he doesn't break. Now, I think we're cool in the gang, right? Is that they went on a journey from being this real badass funk band to being yes. the the wettest, most kind of radio two friendly, um, nominally funk disco act. In the world, I think I hated them around this time. This song's actually really? alright. This song's alright. I love this song. But, but, I think uh, this song's men. But I'm talking about stuff like um, Joanna or Cherish. The cherish, yeah. Man, right? Yeah, cherish think, is one of my least favourite oh, records of the eighties. I fucking hate it. There's something sort of offensively benign about them, um, and mm. when you compare that to, I mean, of course, nowadays because of 
Pulp Fiction, everybody knows Jungle Boogie. Yeah. And, and in Britain at this point, we all knew Ladies Night, which is a bit of a fucking tune. That's brilliant, mm. Ladies Night. Yes, it is. But, but to go from that to being what they became in about 82, 83, it's pretty sad. But this song is all right. It's, this song's still got a bit of the DNA of of their earlier incarnation, I think. It's a great song, Ruined by a Ship Video and a Ship Dance Routine. It's very smooth, but it's... Uh... It's one of those sort of early 80s disco funk records, which, and I mean this as a compliment, like they barely seem to exist as music. It's like mm. you're sort of almost unaware of it happening. You just sense a change in the atmosphere and a lovely opiated glow and this sudden compulsion to dance. Um, it's like a particular kind of perfection of the form. But when mm. you listen to it, there's so much going on in the record to create that effect. It's like, you know, mm. like most smooth rides there's flippers working overtime under the water you know yeah uh, i think it's it's great but from here there's two directions you can travel right uh, with this kind of music either into yeah. abstraction or into minimalism and if i yeah. have a problem with what happened with this kind of music in the 80s there's, it didn't really go far enough in either direction and just wimped out. So the following week get down on it drop one place to number 4 the follow up Take my heart, you can have it if you want it. We'll get to number 29 in March of this year. But they'd have 10 more top 40 hits throughout the 80s, including Joanna and Cherish, which got to number two and number four, respectively. Tell me, baby, how you gonna do it if you really won't take the you guys. Well done. Super stuff. There you go. Now listen, yours is the Team Disco Championship from 1981 Amateur, right? Yeah. Well done. I'm sure you're going to go on to great professional things eventually. But we have a professional group for you now, and all I have to do <laughs> is ask you, who is your favourite professional dance group? Zoo! Zoo! He says the right things with the four tops. Here they come. Zoo! <laughs> points out that the dancers from Princess Park are amateurs and basically menaces one of them into saying that Zoo is his favourite professional troupe. Oh, and we're going to see just how professional they are as they dance to Don't Walk Away by the Four Tops. Formed in Detroit in 1953, the Four Tops signed to Motown in 1963 to record jazz standards for the company's workshop label, but were then invited to sing over an instrumental track which became Baby I Need Your Lovin' and they never looked back. After leaving Motown in 1972 when the label moved to Los Angeles, they had a stint on ABC Dunhill Records and then disappeared for much of the late 70s. However, they signed to Casablanca Records in 1981 and immediately scored a number three hit in November of 1981 with When She Was My Girl. This is a follow-up to that and their 26th top 40 hit in the UK. And it's up this week from number 26 to number 23. On my notes here, I've got the four tops being danced to by the two bottoms. <laughs> this is where Zoo get, really gets pushed in our face. Yeah, there's just way too much dancing on this show. 
I mean, what the fuck is going on? What you know? Is is it an anomaly, or is this just the direction they're trying to take the show in at this point? Well, I mean, this is it, the, the really weird thing is we're right smack into the dawn of the video age. I mean, you know, everybody now has got used to um, promo videos, so BBC have obviously spoiled for choice. But they've got no, no, no. People don't want to see the bands; they want to see dancers. And this is, you know, this is a year or so before fame, remember? I was wondering about fame, whether that was an inf- influence, but no, the, the chronology's wrong. But I'll tell you what was around, was um, Jane Fonda's workout videos. And, <laughs> yes. Um, and just, just um, aerobics. Aerobics was a kind of buzzword at this time. Um, we're, we're still a year and a bit away from breakfast time with Diana Moran, the green goddess, but it's kind of a hint, <laughs> yes. it's sort of hinting towards Mad that. Lizzie. Mad Lizzie as well. So uh, we're kind of hinting towards that, aren't we? But yeah, I think aerobics and jogging were, were in the air at this time. Like keep mm. fit was becoming a thing. Um, yes. And yeah, leg warmers and, and, uh, and lycra was kind of the order of the day, but it's just, it doesn't lend itself to, uh, well, it certainly doesn't lend itself to the four tops. Jesus Christ. No, God, no. One of the greatest bands of all time. You know, one, one of my favourite bands of all time. I don't know about you guys. I, I just totally, totally love the Four Tops. Um, Levi Stubbs, I think, is one of the greatest soul singers who ever lived. Um, mm. I was I was lucky enough to see them when they were still the Four Tops, just about when none of them had died yet in the, yeah. the mid-90s at uh, uh, Wembley. Um, as part of some kind of Motown review. Um I, I don't, I don't like this song very much. Um, I think when no. when she was my girl was better. I, I even think Loco in fucking Acapulco might have been better. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can't, you can't really begrudge the Four Tops having this little kind of Indian summer to their career, can you? Well, this, no, this you is can't. just exactly like uh, one of their old records, but with eighties drums and bass, like as if uh, like yes. everyone listened to Motown records and said it's all right, but we should change the rhythm section. <laughs> make it sound a bit more 80s although it this does just edge it over uh what's it called back to school again which is their contribution to the soundtrack of Grease 2 this year right um, oh dear but yeah it's it is an insult to have zoo dancing to them and i i hate what zoo look like i hate the way they dance i hate the fact that when you look at who was in zoo um they're yes. not content to be dancers, right? There's too many fucking singers and TV presenters and Hills Angels. It's like they yes. got, who's in? There's Downtown Julie Brown, um, Haywood, the singer, uh, yes. was a member oh, yeah. of Zoo. Uh, there's the mysteriously named Void. <laughs> that probably explains why they're so sloppy as dancers, which they really are when you look at it. Uh, mm. as well as looking like they were thrown off an 80s porn set for being too tastelessly dressed. <laughs> like they, look like, they look like they were drawn by preschoolers with crayons. You know what I mean? They, yeah. You're, you're right. They're probably just thinking of the next step in their career. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, no no pun intended. But, yeah, they're, they're, they're totally looking at some kind of TV presenting gig, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And I hate the way that they're clustered around Travis on all the links. Like they're the yes. uber audience, right? Instead of yes. this embarrassing, thrown together gaggle of leaden hoofers. Who, uh, <laughs> and they don't need those fucking leg warmers. It, they must be no. sweating cobs, like leaping around like that under the lights. They're dressed yeah. entirely in man made fibres. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's oh. not good, isn't it? But but Zoo are essentially now the the audience, aren't they? 
And you, you do wonder that why didn't the BBC carry this on? Why didn't they have more glamorous, attractive people in, I don't know, the nine o'clock news? They could have gone, <laughs> they could have gone to like, you know, picket lines and stuff like that. Yeah, but it is, you're, you're right. It's, it's a bit kind of pre-selected. It's a bit like, um, in a, in a John Waters film, Hairspray, the Corny Collins show, where, you know, yes. the audience all have to be, all have to be attractive and all the sort of pretty girls gathering around the presenter who, God help us, in this case is Dave Lee fucking Travis. Yeah. Well, maybe they needed professional kind of like Dave Lee Travis bystanders who had to sign a contract. <laughs> Yeah, because no, yeah, no member of the public would do it voluntarily. Yeah. Also, what I hate about them is that this is the 80s that the posh pseudo-bohemian twats in East London are trying to bring back, you know, where mm, when yeah. you've run out of ideas for clothes, right? You haven't got any new ideas for what to wear. So you just find all the stuff that people previously avoided, you know, with yeah. good reason. Like yeah. uh, clashing colours and mullets and so, and it's an extension of their fundamentally vapid but overbearing uh, worldview. Like they're fundamentally soulless and empty-headed people, but they're born to rule and mm. they're fizzing over with entitlement. So they yeah. have to drag everyone else down to their level so they can still yeah. feel like leaders. I fucking hate it. I can't stand yeah. it. Yeah. And as as we know, after doing you know ten other of these, is that the, the, a lot of the fun in looking at an old top of the pops is looking at the audience, you know, either being in awe of standing next to someone famous or chatting someone up, or just dancing like a mentalist. And we don't get that in this episode. They've been shunted off to the side. There, there is there is an element of the audience which are the kids, but you know y- you hardly see them, and that's. That's just fucking wrong, isn't it? Yeah, you can tell who are the kids because they're the ones in the shit paper party hats that have been Yes, that's it. Yes, yes. <laughs> and as for the dance routine, it's by looking at this, and we take the piss out of it every fucking episode we do, but you look at Zoo and you just go, God, I really miss the storytelling ability of Legs and Co and Pan's people. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think we've necessarily given enough props to Pan's people and Legs and Co in previous no. episodes. I think we're going to look at them with fresh eyes now, aren't we? I do feel guilty now for all the all the times we've taken the piss out of them. I mean, I know that's what we're here for, but, yeah. you know, yeah. They, probably with about two days' notice every week, they came up with something that was at least... Yeah mildly entertaining and something to do with the record or the song unlike unlike these twats who are just sort of leaping around in a kind of notice me notice me kind of way aren't they yeah they're like the they're people who failed the audition for hot gossip yeah or the hot shoe show oh god <laughs> and you know you, you just look at it you think well look you've got two blokes you've got two girls obviously the two girls can be walking away and the two blokes can be imploring them to not walk away. Yeah, yeah. playing the piano for, for six weeks in a, <laughs> yes. in a park yes. in Bristol. Yeah. And Taylor's absolutely right, because um, the winners always write history. And if you go, yes. if you go into um, a fancy dress shop like Partido now and, yes. and, and pick a, a thing off the shelf that says um, Crazy 80s look, this yes. is what it'll be. You can get it yeah. for like £5.99 now. And that, Which that, nobody in real life wore no, in the 80s. No, but this has become solidified now and ossified, and this is the 80s to, yeah. to a lot of people. Well, so. it's like it's like in the early 90s when there'd be 70s nights and all the blokes would dress up like Jason King. 
Yeah, stop getting the past wrong. So the following week, Don't Walk Away nudged up to number 19 and would get as far as number 16. However, the follow-up, Tonight I'm Gonna Love You All Over, only got to number 43, and they left Casablanca and returned to Motown in 1983. Hey, thank our fucking lucky stars that Dave Lee Travis wasn't introducing Tonight I'm Gonna Love You All Over. Yeah... Yes. Jesus, imagine. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'll continue. No, no, no. After walking out on Motown in 1986, they signed to Arista and had one more top 10 hit in 1988 with Loco in Acapulco. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You haven't mentioned the key fact here, the key four tops stroke top of the pops fact, which is that top of the pops saved the lives of the four tops. Oh, Ooh. yeah. They were, they were booked, they were booked onto the plane that exploded over Lockerbie. Yes. And the reason they weren't on the plane is because they were delayed filming Top of the Pops. So they okay. missed it. Fucking That's a hell. Flight. Yeah. Because John Lydon was supposed to be on that plane as well, wasn't he? I, yeah, it's a shame Zoo weren't booked on it. No, I, I shouldn't <laughs> I've, I've heard loads of stories about... I mean, I've, I've heard you, you that did. story about Lockerbie as well. Um, the other story, the other rock-related story about Lockerbie that I've heard is that there was a, a, a consignment of Pretenders tour jackets on the plane... And when they would go through the wreckage, they they found this Jesus. all these kind of silky tour jackets with the pretenders on the back, and the band didn't want them. Nobody wanted to buy them, so they ended up giving them out to the homeless. No. So presumably in in southern Scotland. Uh, for much of that year, there were homeless people walking around with the Pretenders' 1988 tour written mm. across their backs. <laughs> I mean that that could be complete bullshit, but it's a story I heard. Yeah. And the other thing I want to say I'm getting about this zoo routine is Levi Stubbs' tears run down his face. Number 30, new entry from Mobile's Drowning in Berlin. At 29, Wild is the Wind from David Bowie. The Snowmen are still doing the hokey cokey down at 28 this week. And another new entry at 27 is Christopher Cross with Arthur's Bean. At 26, up goes Meatloaf and Dead Ringer for Love. And another new entry at 25, The Stranglers with Golden Brown. Up to 24, go Chaz and Dave with Stars Over 45. And the four tops don't walk away up to 23. Jump of three places for our theme tune, Yellow Pearl. Bernard Liner at 22, and at 21 down go the tweets with Birdie Song. And up to number 20 this week, here's Brown Sauce and I Wanna Be a Winner. Don't wanna dance like Christelle. Be like Superman through the air. Don't wanna join Claire Francis in the Riggins. Pop the black with her Riggins. At BBC TV Wood Lane, London W12 AQT in 1978, Brown Sauce were a band formed by presenters of the Saturday morning kids show The Multicoloured Swap Shop, namely Noel Edmonds, Maggie Philbin, and Keith Chegwin. Distinct absence there, uh, John Craven. Why, why didn't he get involved? Because he's got some sense. He's got some fucking dignity. He was, he was, he was doing a solo career or something at the time. This song, written by B.A. Robertson, was recorded as a one-off and took advantage of the post-Christmas lull to become a surprise hit. It's up from number 31, 
to number 20. Well, this fruit is hanging so low, it's <laughs> scraping off the ground. But fuck it, let's gorge, right? <laughs> okay, first thing I want to say is, did you notice that DLT's distinct lack of enthusiasm yeah. in presenting oh, this? Oh, yes. He actually, he actually made them take out the line, uh, don't want to lead a farm workers union like Cesar Chavez or sicken millions like Dave Lee Travis. Wait, you mean up late working on that one? <laughs> yeah, I must admit I did think of that before we sat down. But but you think DLT's probably shitting himself here thinking, please don't get any higher in the charts than Convoy UK by Laurie Lingo and the Dipsticks. <laughs> <laughs> Which got into the top 10 in, I believe, 1977 or something like that. Sounds about right. So the obvious question here, because we are gentlemen of a certain age, were you a swap shop kid or Tiz was kid? Swap tis shop, was. swap shop. When my mum was around, tis was when she wasn't. Actually, that's that's, right. that's not even true. I was probably just naturally a swap shop kid and a blue Peter kid. That's just how mm. how I roll. I'm very, very BBC. I really am. Swap shop started at an earlier hour than tis was on a Saturday morning. Tis was didn't come on till I don't know, I don't remember. But swap shop started bright and early, so I'd usually watch the first bit of swap shop. Then as soon as tis was was on, I'd turn over. Mm. As would most um, of Britain, I think. Yeah, my heart lay with Tiz was, obviously, because, you know, I, I remember, I swear down, I remember watching that as early as 1974, 1975 or something like that. But like a, like most people, if they actually look within their hearts and actually have a memory, you'd flick from channel to channel, wouldn't you? Yeah. Have I told you my story about how the Phantom Flanflinger is a taxi driver in Brighton? <laughs> right, I'm, I'm sitting back and listening to This Simon. is so fucking brilliant. Um, right, apparently, let's get one thing out of the way. There's more than one Phantom Flanflinger, okay? Yes, there there's, is. There's, there's one guy who's perhaps the, the iconic Phantom Flanflinger, if you will, the sort of Tom Baker of the role. But there, there, there yes. are lots of other kind of lesser Phantom Flanflingers. Pretty much if you turned up to the studio and the regular guy wasn't around, you could have a go at being the Phantom Flanflinger. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I had a taxi ride... Um, across Brighton a few years ago. Um, this guy picked me up quite a few times, actually, and he'd always tell me his stories. Um, he was a plugger for EMI Records based in the Midlands and working things like Kate Bush Records and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, he'd often find himself in the Tiswas studio accompanying some band or other. And one time, the main Phantom Flanflinger guy wasn't there. So he just got to put on the costume and do... I think he did it about seven or eight times. Wow. And how... That that is so awesome to me. Never mind the fact that he was, you know, mates with Kate Bush. Being the <laughs> fucking phantom, the actual phantom flamflinger. Yeah. Mind blown, I tell you. Well, if, funny you say that, Simon, because I know another phantom flamflinger. Um, ah, well, there and, you go. And he runs a Northern Soul night uh, at the pub at the bottom of my street. Does he throw flans at people? Taylor, do you know any phantom flamflingers? No, but I once got drunk with the Tango Man yes! from the Tango advert. Yeah, he slapped people in the face. That was me. Was big, big bold bloke. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was all right, you know. Anyway, brown sauce. Yes. Fucking <laughs> hell, yes. At the age of nine, it seemed perfectly logical that someone would write a song like this. Mm. Because if you live in this time period and your main news source is John Craven, <laughs> this is your world, right? Mm. This is your entire world. Um, and even now I can identify with this song because Penny Keith don't need me at the manor no. and I have no desire to marry Diana no. then then or now. No. Um, and I've been nationwide with Frank Boff <laughs> and once was quite enough, I can tell you. Um, 
and it's I really like this at the time. I I you know this really appealed to mm. me. It's uh, I, I I can't like it now just because it was written by B. A. Robertson, who I hate so much. You know what? And, and the first time we've mentioned him on chart music, that's ridiculous, isn't it? A man whose face you'd only ever be pleased to see if you'd mislaid the tin opener. <laughs> <laughs> you see, right? I really like the comedian Rob Brydon. I think he's really talented and really brilliant. But yeah, it kind of makes me think. It puts me off him slightly that he looks a lot like B. A. Robertson. B. A. Robertson <laughs> is totally wrong. It's just such a wrong and. Um, We've all seen that clip, presumably, of, of him with um, Annabella Lewin. He's interviewing but her of course. Uh, for, but some, of for course. some show or other. And he's just a complete sexist pig to her. And mm. she, quite rightly, just, like, you know, takes him down several pegs. Doesn't she storm mm. off? I think she storms off. I don't know. Yeah, Can't she remember. did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, he's he's horrible. He's like the, the the one thing pop pop can be frivolous. It can be serious. It can be all kinds of things. It should never be smug. And B.A. Robertson was smug. With so little to be smug about. Yeah. I mean, you know, this... Once you've had the idea to write a song like this, right, that's just a laundry list of uh, light entertainment and news celebrities of... Uh, well, of 1981, really. Yeah. Um, you at least fucking do it properly, right? You can't even see it through. No. Like the line that pisses me off with this right now... I know, says, I know. Uh, yeah, go on. <laughs> it says, don't want to ride like Willie Carson, mm. be a bishop or an important parson. Yes. Uh, not only is that a horrible pun, um, which he's got a, a history of, uh, B.A. Robertson. There's a, someone I know had one of his albums and it had a song on it called England's Green and Pheasant Land. <sighs> That's fucking hell. But this line from the song also... It slightly aggravates my mild OCD because it doesn't have a person named in it. No, but it shows so it you a picture of the Pope. It shows yes. you a photo of the Pope, who's who is an important parson, even though it's the wrong religion. <laughs> Actually, I, because how, Catholics don't have how hard would it be? Are there, are there Catholic how, how hard would it be? To, uh, yeah, Nicholas Parsons. So. Yeah, he, he, he was known. <laughs> oh yeah, Nicholas Parsons. Yeah, yeah, or. Don't want to ride like... Yeah, he wasn't on the BBC. Oh, he? yeah, so that's the thing, have... isn't it? Because it is a big advert for the BBC, isn't it, this? I'll tell you yeah. what, um, this this completely threw me when, when you uh, came out with that lyric. I was sure you were going to go with this one, the one that rhymes President Regan with Kevin Keegan. Like, <laughs> yes. who the, oh, God, like, don't get me started. Just, Jesus Christ. <laughs> don't get me started on I mean, that. like, yeah. I know he's only been in office about a year at this point, but surely everybody knew... How you pronounce his name? He was quite well known. Yeah. Jesus Christ! But I, I was talking about this song on um, on Facebook recently because, uh, and what, <laughs> what what I said was, if if someone asked me who was famous in 1981 slash 1982, I would play them this song, and th- then yeah. and then I would apologise for playing this song. Yes. Um, but it it is for all its uh, horrors, it it's the most succinct snapshot of of who were the most famous people in Britain or the world uh, at that point. Um, and, well, it doesn't and, mention Peter Sutcliffe. True, but they're, they're mostly yeah. people. You could have had. You could have had. I, <laughs> I've no desire to bully like Gripper or kill thirteen women like the Yorkshire Ripper. Oh, fuck it. See, already that's don't better wanna, than B. A. Robertson. Go on. Don't want to shoot the Pope. Mehmet Ali Agkar does that. <laughs> I'd like to see him try it with a blue pick. This is the fucking nadir of my life, isn't it? This, I thought I was going to be the next Joan Didion. And here I am, fucking making up 
excess verses for I want to be a winner. It's actually brilliant. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. I, I thought of this earlier. I got it, right? Go on, get don't it want out. to ride like don't want to ride like Willie Carson. <laughs> Play chess like William Hartston. Perfect. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. Perfect. <laughs> but this song is basically this is where the seeds form in Noel's mind about cosmic ordering, isn't it? You know, I want to be successful, but I don't want to do anything to deserve it. Mind you, if you were forced to be in a band with Noel Edmonds, Mm. you would definitely want him to be the drummer. Yeah. Just so that he'd be behind you all the time and you wouldn't have to look at him. Yeah. In his his rock star costume of tinted specs and a rugby shirt. Yes. (laughs) I I, I find it interesting... sort of in what it inadvertently says about celebrity because the people that it lists are famous in a way that people are not famous anymore because they, mm. they all have that kind of universal generation transcending fame that's pretty much gone um yeah. I mean, some of the other names claire francis hurricane Hig- oh by the way I, I i met claire francis last year walking her dogs in in ride on the isle of Wight. just want to throw that in there um <laughs> cool. go so, ahead uh, boycott muhammad ali barbara woodhouse yes um, yeah and yeah princess diana but yeah obviously people of that magnitude like diana you know there are still sort of people who are mega stars like that but it's that next rung down people who are kind mm. of variety stars who are famous for young and old is is yeah. something that really does not exist anymore i, I think that that's something that's um, quite poignant about this song. No, you can't use that word about this fucking awful song. But <laughs> but but you, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and and uh, sportsmen who are famous who weren't footballers. That's something. Yes. That's yeah. Well. God. Yeah. 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 Olympics. But apart from that. Oh, but listening to you list those names there, it's quite terrible how many of the people mentioned in this song did not prosper. Right. Mm. It's. Uh, there's Diana, Muhammad Ali, Hurricane yeah. Higgins, uh, Frank Boff. I think it's time yeah. to start talking seriously about the curse of brown sauce, in fact. <laughs> yes, uh, definitely. Even, yeah. the members of the band, even the members of the band, Keith Chegwin descended into alcoholism. Uh, Maggie Got Philbin, his cock out on the teller. Maggie Philbin married Keith Chegwin, and Noel yes. Edmonds went mad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Noel Edmonds continued being Noel Edmonds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, And and the other thing that really fucked me off about this video was they sang just a little Oscar, please. And Maggie Philbin's brandishing the world's biggest Oscar that she probably got from Athena or something like that. (laughs) And you just thought that's completely out of proportion. I mean, if you had a a little teeny tiny Oscar, that would work with a song. But no. Speaking of which, have you ever seen Noel Edmonds' hands? Is is this a film or? No, no. If you ever see a picture (laughs) of Noel Edmonds holding something. It's like someone's tried to force a marrow into the hand of an action man. Oh, oh, oh by the way, here's, here's another fucking brag. Uh, anybody here um, touched an, an Eric? No. <laughs> well, I have. The Eric, of course, was the awards that the Swap Shop gave out every year, named after uh, one of, the, I think it was their floor manager, Eric, who was a very kind of Mrs. Mannerin person. You never saw who he was. Mm. Uh, I did an interview with Tony Hart uh <clears throat> about oh, three or so years before he died and I'm in his studio and he, he's got an, he had an Eric you might want to rephrase that yes <laughs> yeah but he, he won an Eric and also next to it was uh, the original Morph in a glass case like Lenin it'd be so amazing right if you went to Tony Hart's house and he said right <laughs> I don't Lenin. show this to many people but I'm going to show you the original Morph 
and you walk into the room and it's just a ball of plasticine yes. scrunched yes. up. It's like, well, what do you expect? That's what he does, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he reconstitutes. <laughs> the other thing I like about this song is the equivalence that it draws between being able to paint like Van Gogh and going on telly and telling a dog to sit down or uh, or being somehow required by Audrey Forbes Hamilton, <laughs> like like Ned or Brabinger. They used to call Brabinger the, the Van Gogh of Grantley. <laughs> <laughs> but also pretending to be Van Gogh, but having a paintbrush behind an ear that shouldn't be there. Oh, yeah, because Noel personifies it. Yeah, it? you see. Just the lack of detail in the research of this video is just appalling. Although, to be honest, the rest of him shouldn't be there either. Do you know well, uh, yes. what, what about when he drums that that bit <laughs> in the video? Where he keeps yeah. drumming with his with his tiny hands on the on the stick, <laughs> like drumsticks, which in his hands look like baseball bats. Well, look like the ones that bloke out of Mott the Hooper was playing on that episode <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah. talked about. <laughs> if you're really hip, by the way, you'll say that you prefer the Edmonds less follow up when they change their name to the Source. Yes, uh, Spring has sprung. Yes, or or the B side uh, yes. major breakthrough. Uh, but you know, you, you would be posturing. I think if you uh, if you tried to make a case, you're not it. going to get a result by name dropping brown sauce, are you? In any kind of conversation. No, I tell you what, including this one. I tell, the other curious thing about this video is that um, Maggie Philbin her dress is inside out. If you look closely, she's got one right. dress that says New York, but it's backwards. So she's obviously. Wearing it, right. it's like some sort of sex farce. Like she's, she's been in, in the room, like like as the rhythm section. She's been off in a little room with Noel Edmonds, laying down the uh, laying down the backing. Comes back behind Cheggers's back. Got it's like Fleetwood Mac, Poor isn't Cheggers. it? You look at this, and it's like you look at this, and uh, this really this video looks for all the world like Keith Chegwin trying to live his dream, and it being ruined by Noel Edmonds, who's clearly treating the whole thing as a big fucking joke. We've got to say John Craven made the right move, didn't he? It's it's a bit it's it's very similar to Chazney refusing to be in that film with the other members of All Saints. <laughs> very smart a career move there. Well done, John. So the following week I just want to be a winner dropped to number 23, fucking hell. But then he jumped up to number 15 the next week, which was its highest position. Edmonds left the band soon after and Philbin and Chegwin released one more single as the Saucers Spring has Sprung, which failed to chart in March of 1982, the month that Swap Shop ended. They didn't get higher than DLT. But they did beat the Bucketeers and the Bucket of Water song. So, you know, a, a victory of sorts for Swap Shop there. Stevens and Old Julia, 13. 
Cliff Richard with Danny's Home drops to this week's number 12. One place up for Waiting for a Girl Like You from Foreigner. And 11 places up to number 10 for this one from Craftwork. Dusseldorf in 1969, Kraftwerk began as an experimental rock band before going all synthia in 1974. They went on to influence anyone who even went near a synth throughout the late 70s and early 80s, but they first came to prominence in the UK with Autobahn, which got to number 11 in June of 1975. They released Computer Love, the second cut off the new LP Computer World, in July of 1981, but it only got to number 42 in August of that year, and it slid out of the charts. However, the B-side, the model from the 1978 LP Man Machine, was picked up on by DJs, so EMI flipped the order and put it out again in December, and it's up this week from number 21 to number 10. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Is it? Well, the fact that this is a this is a you know a three year old song that was on a B side. Well, I guess so, but um, it's the sort of thing that used to happen a lot with soul records, and and sometimes it would happen deliberately yeah. later on in the decade with um, Last Christmas slash Everything She Wants by Wham, but that was quite craft quite crafty of them. Maybe uh, this is this is where they got the idea. Yeah. But um, Computer Love's not much. I mean, it's all right, Computer Love. I, I quite like it, but it's not it's not an A side. Yeah. So. In a way, it's just, you know, DJs correcting a mistake that Kraftwerk have made there, mm. uncharacteristically making a mistake. Yeah, because I have to say, I, mean, I do like I do like my Kraftwerk, and out of all the songs that could have been their one number one, why did it have to be this one? Oh, I really like it. I think it's a fantastic that, record. Yeah. But, and, and, yeah. and I, I kind of, in retrospect, I, I view what's happening here in the same way as Bowie when he came back with Ashes to Ashes and Fashion, and Rox- Roxy Music, when he comes back with Angel Eyes and Same Old Scene, because basically you've got all the new romantic bands uh, ripping off these 70s greats, Roxy, Bowie and Kraftwerk, and, and you've got the old masters coming back to reap the benefits, like, hang on a minute, we're still here. Yeah, this is now, this is now their world. Like, they programmed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, my memory is that, at the time, this was treated almost as a novelty record. Yeah. Certainly uh, by the media, despite the fact that it's obviously the root of about half of what's now in the charts. And I think it was because they were German, because uh, even as late as this, the British sort of treated Europeans the way that Henry Kelly treated them in Going for Gold. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. like, and, you know, Brexit being the final act of this. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, Germans still meant basically Spike Milligan in a funny Nazi costume yeah. and that kind of thing at this I point. I mean, Germans were still the enemy in 1982, wasn't it? I mean, in a couple of months' time, all the, yeah. all the uh, action comics would uh, have uh, the Brits bashing Argentinians. But at the minute, Germans are still seen as you know, the other. But I think, you know, Germans of the 1940s were seen as the other by Germans of the 70s and 80s. And this is why Kraftwerk are yes. what they are. Mm. This this ex- this mm. explains everything about... I mean, I'm not coming out with a particularly, uh, you know, um, groundbreaking theory. This is what everybody says about Kraftwerk, but it happens to be right. And I've yeah. actually... I'm, I'm going to do that thing they do on Blue Peter where they say, here's one we prepared earlier. I've got a little bit... I've got a little bit that I wrote um, in a live review of, of uh, Kraftwerk. Um, and I'm going on about Ralph Hutter and Florian Schneider um, being born in the years... 1946 and 47 and what i'm saying is they were mm. marshall Pla- they're marshall plan kids 
who reach, reach maturity yeah. at a time when nostalgia for the art and artifacts of their homeland was unconscionable. The only way was forward. And that's why, while the Britain mm. of the early 70s wallowed in, in the faces and free, and America in Credence and Skinnerd, West Germany gave us Kraftwerk. This is why, for many of us, a Kraftwerkian 1, 2, 3, 4 is, is as iconic as a Ramonian 1, 2, 3, 4. That's, and here mm. ended the section of the thing that I wrote. But yeah, I, I, I think that, that's the point, that they are, they're, they're products of the war. In the same way that our attitudes are anti-German attitudes uh, of the time were, were, were lingering from the war. They, their radical futurism, their radical cleanliness and futurism of Kraftwerk's music is also due to World War II. See, in a way, the greatest compliment that I can pay this record is when I sat down uh, and tried to think about what I could say about it. Um, Not much came to mind. Um, Even though I love Kraftwerk so much. But, you see, sometimes it's hard to discuss the classics because, you know, occasionally you get to puncture a myth or something. But often, the stuff you've heard a thousand times is the truth. Mm. And the thing about this lot is they're so, everything they do is so beautifully formed Mm. and aesthetically perfect that it's easy to grasp and not miss anything. So, which is kind of right because they're designed to be beautiful and functional Mm. and beyond chatter. Yeah. Um, So in a way, it seems amazing that there's so little to say about this great record. Uh, as opposed to some of the other less than great records on this. Uh, yeah, it's episode. always the way, isn't but, it? <clears throat> but in a way, yeah, it's as it should be because, you know, when you talk about these old hits, you latch on to the imperfections and mm. the odd angles and the bits that time has gnawed away at. Mm. Whereas this record is pristine and self-contained and uh, to reduce it to to words is almost to miss the point which isn't true for most pop music especially not from this period because it's all about uh, a sort of a chaos of ideas uh, doesn't apply to this, it's, it is what it is mm. what I, I want to talk a bit about the, the video or the footage that we see because please um, do, I, I've always wondered with this video um, I, maybe, maybe you guys can fill me in on this um, that footage that you see of you know, black and white footage of fashion models in the olden days um was mm. that Kraftwerk's own choice to put that there, or is that something that the BBC have? I was wondering that. Because I, I was wondering. Well, it's not. No, I, I, I think no, it's, it's not it's, a BBC it's become thing. definitive now because when you go and see Kraftwerk live, um, they show that footage. But at the time, I thought, is right. it like that thing they have of you know wacky footage of trains exploding and people jumping yeah. off Worthing Pier? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whistle test um, stuff. Yeah. So, so apparently, yeah. this this was Kraftwerk's own own video. But my favourite bits are, are when when you see them, and it's just their mm. kind of facial expressions because they're so non-rock and roll. It, that, it's what's so great yeah. about them because you've got to remember they're baby boomers. Germany had a post-war baby boom the same as anywhere else. Um, maybe a slightly <clears throat> more depressive baby boom. I'm <laughs> like, um, oh no, yeah. we've lost the war. We might as well have sex and have a baby rather than more jubilant yeah. sex that British and Americans were having. Or worse. Um, Ralph and Florian were baby boomers, but they're, they're not rockers. They weren't rock and rollers. Mm. And, um, no. and th- this is what I love about just their, their faces um, of when, when they're sort of, um, they're not hunched in a masturbatory way um, over their instruments in the way that a rock guitarist no. would, nor are their heads thrown back in sexual ecstasy. What it is is diligence. They're just looking down, 
carefully and diligently yeah. over their machinery and making sure that it's all functioning correctly and there's something absolutely yeah. beautiful about that for me yeah and who hasn't done that one night when the pistol over a stove with a couple of wooden spoon handles <laughs> well I, I actually bought one of those ones um which had uh, four circles not six um that yeah they're, they're those ones that um they used to advertise in the in the back of smash hits and it just looked like the sexiest thing in the world these little <laughs> drum pad things um but i i got how much were they oh fuck no way more than i could afford but i, I got one in the 90s for about a fiver a car boot sale oh right and it's brilliant and i um when i was djing i used to really annoy the punters by plugging in and going doo doo over the top because <laughs> yeah, one, of, one of the noises you could get was a, a kelly marie style style yes which Kraftwerk had way too much dignity to, to use, of course. Yeah. So the following week, it jumped up to number two, then down to number three, and then up to number one, knocking O'Julie off the top spot before being knocked off itself by a town called Malice. The follow-up, Showroom Dummies, would only get to number 25. It is weird, isn't it, that um, the two most modern-sounding records in this episode and, and yeah. we're, we're, we're going to come to another one uh, shortly were from you know four years previously uh, the, ridiculous from a time when four years ago was a fucking eon away yeah totally <laughs> Right now, the all-important top section of the charts. Let us see precisely what's happening. Number nine, it must be love from Madness. John and Vangelis, I'll find my way home, is up one to number eight this week. A three-place jump for altered images. I could be happy at number seven. And down one to six, it's ABBA with one of us. Here are the top five. At number five, and rap, Adam and the Ants, and Dollar with Mirror Mirror have moved up four places to this week's number four. Also up four places to number three, Cool and the Gang get down on it, and down to number two, The Human League with Don't You Want Me. So, here we have the number one sound after five weeks for Human League, it's Bucks Fizz and the land of make-believe. Stars in your eyes, little one, where do you go to dream, to a place? We all know the land of make-believe. Formed in London in late 1980 in order to perform an entry in the 1981 UK Song for Europe competition, Making Your Mind Up, Bugs Fizz went on to beat Liquid Gold to become the UK's representative in that year's Eurovision Song Contest, which it won. This song, written by band creator Andy Hill and former King Crimson member Peter Sinfield, is their 1981 non-Christmassy Christmas record that has just knocked the Human League's Don't You Want Me off the top spot after five weeks, jumping up from number two. Now, first thing I want to chuck out there is this song is supposed to be an anti-Thatcher song, so can anyone explain that to me? It's really about heroin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, you're asking a lot to expect any sort of coherent narrative to a Pete Sinfield lyric. Mm. I mean, this is a man whose previous lyrics include the sea goat casts Aquarian runes through beads of mirrored tears. Suave pirates' words of apricot crawl out of your veneer. Hiccup. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's pointless, isn't it? It's, just, it's not really about anything. <laughs> Something nasty in your gardens waiting patiently till it can have your heart. Try to go, but it won't let you. Don't you know it's out to get you? 
It's not exactly ghost town, is it? But it's not exactly making your mind up either. Or where's this urban myth come from? Is it just like fucking Bob Holness playing a sax solo on Baker Street? Is it one of those? I, I, I honestly don't know. It's, it's been mentioned in interviews and stuff like that that it's a, a, a song about Jesus. Thatcherism. Yeah. It's bizarre. But the performance. Uh, Bugsfers are wearing kind of like matching Chinese pajamas. They're kind of kimonos and, ki- kimonos and cavalier trousers. It's almost like, you know, those children's books where um, it's split down the middle and you can flip the pages and you'll have like a guardsman's jacket with a postman's head and, you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so what does the panel think about Bugsfers then? It's hard to credit that this is a British record in some ways. It, sound, mm. it sounds very sort of Benelux or... <laughs> possibly German, just the relentless thump of it mm. and the sort of overcast, semi-reggae feel. I was going to say, is it is it technically a reggae record? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's not Irie, but, you know, is it a reggae record? It's, it's, it's on the reggae preset. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. But you can at least see why it's number one, even mm. if you wouldn't have helped to put it there. Um, mm. It's a sort of a, a well-turned-out, commercial record but i mean fucking hell you you watch you watch dollar and then you watch this and you wonder how anyone could ever have been bamboozled into thinking that dollar were bland you know this is like (laughs) dollar if dollar had been produced by alan shearer it's just uh, a really sort of blunt direct not very thought out pop record it works though it does work in the same way that alan shearer worked um but at the same time, these people, when you look at Buck's Fizz, they're not human experiments like Dollar. No. And, and they're not phonies like Brown Sauce. And they're no. not they're not simulacra like Shaky. They're just mm. four unremarkable human beings up there doing their best, just like they would have done in the hairdressing salons where they belong. <laughs> There's something really pure about it, I think. Yeah, and yeah. Like, everybody Good, likes Cheryl Baker, at least, surely. Yes. Because she just looks like she'd be a right laugh. Yes. Yeah, but you see, my Jay Aston is my uh, secret crush. Um, she's usually, I think, the unsung sex bomb nah. of the early 80s. Unsung. But it's really not unsung. happening. Are but you kidding me? It's really not happening in you this clip. No, it's not happening in this clip, right? This In this clip, she has a sort of weird... Uh, Jesse J hard facedness about her like mm. she, like she's the new landlady of a pub in South East London you know uh, <laughs> but it's not you're just left with eggs and baker and and those two bad at football Roy races it's not there's no it all falls flat without uh, Jay Aston's usual tigress presence about three months after this episode went out I was on a school exchange in Germany and uh, that's where I came across the magazine Bravo. And, um, yeah, we know where this is going, don't we? Oh, yeah, in more ways than one. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Bravo was pretty much the German equivalent of looking. So there'd be pop features, there'd be telly features and stuff like that. And I got a copy and I was flicking through it and he goes, oh, look, there's Adamant. Oh, look, there's David Essex. Oh, look, there's a sex problem page <laughs> for uh, early teenagers with actual photos of of like 13-year-old girls and boys kind of, you know, getting it on. But there was an article about uh, an appearance by Bugs Fizz on German television where um, Jay Aston appeared to have forgotten to put her drawers on. And they were doing the spinny round thing in Making Your Mind Up and there was uh, just basically an arse shot. And uh, yeah, that... 
that got pulled out of the uh, of the magazine and it got passed around the playground in Nottingham a few weeks later. And uh, you still got it? I, no, I haven't. I think I think oh. I, I swapped it for a Rubik snake. <laughs> Although speaking of uh, speaking of of Germany, we've seen the clip of them from a couple of years after this. No, from about a year after this, doing if you can't stand the heat on German television in crazy fetish wear. It's it is brilliant. And first of all. I've never seen anyone look... The last time I saw anyone look as awkward in PVC fetish wear as Cheryl Baker in yeah. this clip, I was peering through the, a car window in a lay-by in Chelmsford. <laughs> and, but the, the Jay and Mike looked like, as though they were born to do this, right? Mm. It's really, they're very, very convincing. But the best thing about the clip is that they're performing on a stage with tables around it, like a sort of a, you know, like a dinner club, you know, like a cabaret mm. performance. And at the table right in front of the stage where Bucks Fizz <laughs> right are gyrating erotically is a young kid and his mum. Um, yes. <laughs> living out the, uh, the, the perfect, the perfect, actions of a, a young kid and his mum faced with something uh more sexual than what they were prepared for yeah uh, the the mum is looking very unimpressed mm. while the lad is pretending that he hasn't noticed yes what's happening. <laughs> he's just looking in another direction so that afterwards if his mum says anything he can say well i i didn't notice i didn't didn't see yeah anything. there was a there was a pac-man machine over in the corner i was looking at but no that happened to me when i was on holiday in chapel st leonard's when i was about 13 or something and uh we me my family would always sit on the front table right near the stage and there was a dance troupe of uh, young ladies called the champagne kittens and on the last night, they came out um, d- dancing to... I can't even remember what they were dancing to. Something like Bad Boys or something like that. And they're all in stockings and suspenders. And they're, they're basically just rolling about on the floor just from in front of my face. And I kind of like... First time they did it, I kind of jumped up and I knocked, I knocked a full plate of scampi and chips over on me, ma'am. <laughs> so I felt, I felt that boy's pain. I've, I've, I've been there. It is the the fundamental design flaw in the family unit. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, but at this moment in time, they're still, you know, fizzy books fizz. They're not, they're not sex fizz yet, are they? Yeah. No. Oh, fucks biz. Yes. <laughs> they're still, they're still living off the um, the vibe from uh, making your mind up. Yeah, and Bobby you know, G. The- Bobby G. Also has nineteen seventies hair, um, so yes. so you can see why uh, David Van Day was a logical fit because it's kind of his mirror yeah. image. She's seeing there. He saw yeah. kind of soul brother when he when yes. he saw Dave Van Day. You know, he just thought that's my kind of guy. You know, Bobby G. Was uh, an ex builder. Yes, and I was looking at him. I think, what did he build? Paper houses. Yes, <laughs> like he's an ex builder in nineteenth century Japan. Yes, um, he's not. Yeah, you, you, you can't see him with a hod, can you? Really? No, no. Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you what I do like about this performance, though, is their synchronised wrist moves. Yes. <laughs> it's like they're so beautifully re- well rehearsed. It's like if the stylistics were as white as is humanly possible. <laughs> this, um, but because it's Bucks Fizz, you watch this and 
uh, it doesn't look like a natural expression of their personalities. You just picture no. them in a on a sort of drizzly Wednesday morning in a in a in a room, one wall of which is a mirror. Yeah, a pineapple dance studio. Yeah, yeah, being shouted at by a quite severe lady. With a stick, yeah, well, yeah, banging it on the floor. You, you got big dreams, yes. <laughs> fame, yes. Uh, there's also a young Jurgen Klopp in the audience <laughs> towards the end. Well spotted, that man. If you look closely, <laughs> but yeah, the, it's not great. It's not the Bucks Fizz that I can tolerate. Mm. Um, I like, I do quite like the sexy Bucks Fizz, and I like the tragic Bucks Fizz. Yes, um, but this is just, yeah, it's like it's not convinced. There's I don't. Also, I don't like the mugging to camera. There's, there's more. There's more fucking mugging in this performance than the Lower East Side in 1979. <laughs> it's really hard. It's like tiring to watch. You mm. know? Bugs Frizz are essentially a, a, a more attractive brotherhood of man, aren't they? Who can dance a bit. Yeah, and a infinitely less attractive and talented Abba. So the land of make believe would spend another week at number one before being usurped by the model. The follow up. My Camera Never Lies gave them their third and final number one in April of this year and they'd have seven more top 40 hits throughout the 80s. And then David Van Day came up. to finish off the programme. Thanks very much on behalf of the whole team here at Top of the Box. See you for another one next week. Take care. Good night. Right, Ed, being boiled. The Human League... Yeah, all 40 seconds of it. Yeah, but oh, what 40 seconds there were. What I love about it, right? Because <laughs> the song, of course, is this radical vegan manifesto. It's a, a, a stern condemnation of the silk trade. So you've got, yes. so, so you got Phil Oakey going... Uh, oh, and by the way, we've already seen Dave Lee Travis uh, surrounded by people with mini flags and balloons, which I, yes. I, I think is kind of a, almost a hangover from the royal wedding that had happened only a yeah. few months ago. So there's that kind of party atmosphere. So you've got Phil Oakey going, listen to the voice of Buddha saying, stop your sericulture. And then someone goes, woo, move it. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah, someone does shout, move it, doesn't they? I thought that was a floor manager. Yeah, I thought it was a floor around. manager like, as well, yeah. Because it's quite <laughs> yeah. aggressive. It doesn't sound yeah. like whooping it up. It's a no. bit of a sort of, a, you know, get out of the way of this fucking crane or I'm going to be on a charge for decapitating a 12-year-old. <laughs> Formed in Sheffield in 1977 as the future, the Human League were originally an all-male synthesizer group who signed with the independent label Fast Product in 1978. This is the first single they ever released in June of 1978, which failed to chart. After signing to Virgin Records, a re-recorded version of this was put on the Holiday 80 EP, which got to number 56 in May of 1980. After that, half the band spinned off to form Heaven 17. The remaining members got Susan Sully and Joanne Catherall in, and they became one of the biggest bands of 1981, with their latest single, Don't You Want Me, currently at number two. To capitalise on this, EMI have re released the original version of Being Boiled and here it is, a new entry at number 19. 
This kind of sticks a pin in the balloons, doesn't it, this song? The best thing and the grimmest thing about this clip is Dave Lee Travis, now so alienated from everything that makes up his life, that he introduces a record called Being Boiled in exactly the same tone of voice in which I tell the woman on the checkout that no, I don't have a Tesco club card. (laughs) <laughs> yes. it's unbelievable to, and his little pathetic little wave of the balloon like yeah party on lads he's not he's not having fun here at all and is those he? disco champions are totally unable to dance to this record as I suspect yeah they're rubbish yeah, they're aren't they sort of, either that or they're frozen on the spot experiencing a, a sudden revelation re the barbarity of sericulture <laughs> like, yes. oh, God, when I get home my my sexy bed sheets are going straight in a bit. Yeah, and while he's un- uh, unwrapping a flag made of silk. No, probably. Yeah, didn't think that through, did they? It's basically like Top of the Pops doing Meet His Murder and everybody waving chickens about or something. Yeah, that would have been brilliant. <laughs> yes, it would have been absolutely brilliant. But, I mean, the, the, the thing is about this is that Top of the Pops have decided that pop music on their show is going to be like this you know, all wavy and smiley and jumpy up and down there. And then all of a sudden, they realise that, oh shit, there's this type of song as well. Yeah, you've got one of the most bleak, stern records ever made. Yeah. And people waving flags and balloons around. But I I love that. I love the fact that the Human League was so fucking popular at yeah. this time, off, off the back of Don't You Want Me, that this could be re-released and get mm. into the top 10. Yeah. There's was, there was a lot of that. I suppose um, the previous year would have been Adam and the Ants. So yeah. you had things like Young Parisians and yeah. Deutsche Girls car trouble. making it into yeah. the charts. Car trouble, yeah. Um, and this this was the league's version of that. Yeah. It's a great record, though. I mean, It is, isn't it? When, when, when you consider that... Um, all right, uh, I know that Martin Ware these days is an absolute synth boffin, but at this point, they were amateurs. They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. They were mucking around in a kind of art centre in a former kind of meat warehouse or whatever it was in mm. Sheffield and they were coming and they came out with something like this it's just a phenomenal uh, record yeah really it's it's just it's got this Christmas to it it's like it's like a smack in the face yes. it really is particularly uh, high high volume and um, I don't think it's dated at all every time um, there's some kind of revival of synth music whether it's you know God, start of this century, Electro Clash, or, or, mm. or more recent initiatives. Um, this record can sit amongst that and still sound modern, I think. Yeah. I love the early, like, pre-fame Human League stuff. Oh, I love the, mm. the, the classic Human League stuff too, but I love, I love their early albums. And uh, the, this idea that people like Paul Weller had, that this kind of synth music is somehow inhuman or faceless uh in fact the sheer material materiality uh of the sound is so overwhelming and kind of weirdly intimate because it's also audibly homemade you get more of a sense of there being people on this record than you do from about half the records on this top of the pops you know Mm. um and also anyone who's ever met phil oakey will tell you that he's such a nice bloke who only wants yes. to talk about pop music all the time, which is mm, brilliant. Because yes. normally you go and interview people, and you know they're they're there doing promotion, or they want to tell you what they think about the government or something. You, you go and interview Philoki, just wants to talk about pop music all day, um, and also he's got he still looks the same now because he's got one of those 
ageless Yorkshire faces, like a yeah. cube with a face drawn on one side of a cube. Um, <laughs> yeah, his hair's all gone. His hair's all gone. But apart from that, yeah, he's um, sickeningly handsome. Anything else to say about this? Yeah, in the credits it says Flick Colby, dance director. Right mm. now, what was wrong with the word choreographer? Is yeah. it that they don't think people know what choreographer means, or is there some more sinister reason? Dance dictator, dance fuhrer, dance com- dance commander. That was Electric Six, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's there's some. Yeah, I quite like that actually. So the following week, Being Boyle jumped up to number nine and would go as high as number six. Virgin Records then re-released the Holiday ATEP in May of this year while the band were on a break, but it only got to number 46. And that is the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. On TV afterwards, well, BBC One follows up with a great hedgehog mystery, which promises to show how hedgehogs have it off and has footage of one of them masturbating with a fence. Yeah, I distinctly remember seeing that. It was just basically frotting up against this fence and working itself up into a froth. It was, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Um, They followed that up with the sitcom Seconds Out with Robert Lindsay. Then there's an episode of Shoestring followed by Question Time and a repeat of Kojak. BBC Two has the Welsh drama series Enel's Point, followed by Fred Housego arsing around the village of Swavesy in history on your doorstep, and then a documentary about unemployment in Govan, the Nolans in concert, then a 40 minutes documentary called The Great Cover Hub about the length certain men will go to when they start losing their hair, and finishes off with Newsnight and the quarterfinals of the Embassy Professional Darts Championship from Jolly's Club in Stoke-on-Trent. ITV's had TVI, News at 10, a golfing documentary and something called The Medicine Men, which I couldn't find anything about. So, chaps, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? We'd probably be laughing at all those blokes trying to get the hair back. I'm talking about the hedgehog masturbating on a fence, to be honest. Yeah, um, great album. Now, I, I think um, probably um, bolstering our fragile heterosexuality by talking about <laughs> how much we fancied Claire Grogan. I I think yeah. I'd be talking about brown sauce just because of the wrongness of these people turning mm. up in this context, uh, which as a kid it can be really confusing. It would be like it'd mm. uh, be like switching on the news and seeing that Iggy Pop is yeah. the prime minister. It really disturbs you, you know. Uh, possibly, yeah. Or Noel Gordon walking into the Rovers' return or something like no, that. It's, it's not it's, done, is it's it? Not right. Um, possibly the state of zoo, but probably not because if you live in 1982, yeah. it's a bit like living your whole life in Middlesbrough. Mm. You don't notice the fumes anymore. And um, what are we buying on Saturday? I um, I'd be buying both the electronic records that had come out in 1978. So yeah, the model and being boiled. I actually did buy being boiled, so that's not me kind of uh, trying to sort of airbrush my past um mm. but um i didn't actually pick up the model until a few years later second hand yeah um, right model boiled mirror and maybe if i was feeling flush happy and down on it <laughs> <laughs> and what does this episode tell us about january 1982 seems like pop music is still in rude health isn't yeah, it Yeah, but it's that most tragic of things which is something starting to die that doesn't realise it. Like I mean, mm. 1982 was full of great yeah. music, but it was a significant drop from 81, and 83 would be an even more mm. significant drop from 82. And in fact, there's then an exponential decline 
in the quality of the charts for the rest of the decade. So even though this is a mm. pretty pretty fine episode of Top of the Pops, it's a bit like watching Donald Campbell climbing into Bluebird or or that teacher who was on the space <laughs> shuttle uh, waving and smiling yes. and all these all these paper party hats on the audience are somehow poignant. Mm. I agree with everything Taylor said. <laughs> and that closes the book on another episode of Chart Music. All that remains now is for me to give you usual bullshit about how you can get hold of us, even though you've already got hold of us. So the website is www.chart-music.co.uk. You can get us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. And you can find us on Twitter, chartmusictotp. All that remains to do now is to thank Taylor Parks. Yeah, no problem. And thank you, Simon Price. You're welcome. And I do genuinely want a pair of Fonz shoes and a heterosexual rock and roll badge. Yeah, don't forget that. And if you My do come up- across that picture of uh, Jay Aston's arms. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the end of Chart Music for this week. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Al Needham, and I am the amateur team disco dancing champion of 1981. <laughs> Sharp music.
Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs> 